Yeah. Masterfully written, ordained by God as a classical piece to spit passionately and mimic the clapping of heat over immaculate beats to capture the beast. My verses touch the youth like Catholic priests. Every time I do this, I get a bunch of hate mail. Bring it. Let's uh, go to New Orleans, all right? Uh, the FBI has opened an investigation into sex abuse in the Roman Catholic Church in New Orleans going back decades, all right? Uh, the New Orleans cases under review allege abuse by clergy during trips to Mississippi camps or amusement parks in Texas and Florida. And while some claims are decades old, Man Act violations notably have no statute of limitation. We had to fight for that law, by the way. It's been a long road, and just the fact that someone this high up believes us means the world to us, said a former altar boy who alleged his assailant, assailant took him on trips to Colorado, Florida, and abused him. This was starting in the 1970s, he was only in the fifth grade. Federal investigators are now considering whether to seek access to thousands of secret church documents produced by lawsuits and shielded by sweeping confidentiality orders in the bankruptcy according to those familiar with the probe who were not authorized to discuss with the AP on condition of anonymity. Those records are said to document years of abuse claims, interviews with accused clergy and a pattern of church leaders transferring problem priests without reporting their crimes to law enforcement. Now, let me say this, okay? I don't give a damn if you come to work with the priest collar on. I don't care that you've been ordained by some secular group. And I don't give a damn if you say you are called by God. When you touch the children, you are a monster. You will forever be a monster in my book. So while the FBI may still be considering what to do, I know exactly what to do with it, put up his picture. Among the priests under federal scrutiny in New Orleans, they call it scrutiny, is Lawrence Hecker, 90 year old, removed from the ministry in 2002. Following accusations, he abused countless children. Hecker is accused of, of abusing children decades ago on out of state trips and other claims against him range from fondling all the way to rape, keep his picture up. As I have said before, and I will say again, the Catholic Church is nothing more than another company, another corporation, greedy, corrupt, hiding the reality of who they are. The character of that company is defined by those they protect. That's any company, including the Catholic Church. Now, damn it, if you don't like it, fine, but I'm telling you the truth. Are there some good Catholic people in the world? Of course there are, just like there's some good cops in the world. But you're not that good if you allow the bad to define you. This should have been exposed by the culture of the industry if the industry was righteous. Meaning, if your culture is more right than wrong, when there's something wrong, the right culture will excommunicate it. But when it's the other way around, the wrong will remain and permeate. Put up the next picture. His name is Patrick Wadenee, a priest charged last year by state prosecutors after he admitted, he admitted to molesting a teenager in 2013. His 2020 removal from the ministry came amid an investigation into inappropriate text messages he sent to a student. Had been doing it a long time, they got him for one but not the other. Let's talk about the legal hurdles 
in the past, okay? The issue has always been determining what is the federal crime, said Peter G. Strasser, the former US attorney in New Orleans who declined to bring charges in 2018. After the archdiocese published a list of 57 credibly accused clergy. Now remember, this, this archdiocese did the right thing, made it public. It was a roster and AP analysis found had been undercounted by at least 20 names. Strasser said he naively believed a federal case might be possible only to encounter a host of roadblocks, including the complexities of putting the church on trial for charges like conspiracy. So let's be very clear, the reason why he did not prosecute it is because he was politically scared and not a leader. Do you understand that rappers are prosecuted under the RICO Act? State statute, RICO acts, not even the federal government. They figure out creative ways to prosecute gang members, rappers, black folks all the time. School teachers were prosecuted under the RICO Act in the cheating scandal in the city of Atlanta. Yeah, but you can't prosecute actual preachers who are committing child molestation. There's more. Louisiana joined two dozen states that have enacted lock look back windows intended to allow unresolved crimes of sex abuse, no matter how old, to be brought in civil court, but with few exceptions. Most notably, a former deacon charged with rape, the accused clergy have escaped criminal consequences. Even at the local level, cases have been hamstrung by statutes of limitation and the political sensitivity of prosecuting the church. Uh, Let's be clear, this is corruption. I don't give a damn what they call it, political sensitivity, that is corruption. Children are victimized by a company of men who have power and influence and the government did nothing to very little about it. Jessica, thoughts here. Yeah, if you're out there watching this and you're Catholic and this makes you uncomfortable, it should. I grew up in an Italian American family. There were a lot of people who were Catholics and a lot of people left the church. You really have to ask yourself, is the church representing your spiritual values and your principles? And you can be religious and spiritual and keep those values in your relationship with a higher power and still not support a corrupt institution. And I really think that people within the Catholic Church need to look within themselves and think, am I supporting a corrupt institution? Is it time for me to leave? And I think many people upon reflection will conclude yes. This is also a super interesting case where they're applying an old law that was created for unjust reasons, right? Law and justice are absolutely not the same. But it can be applied in a way that protects these altar boys and brings about justice. And that's really interesting, right? The Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act, was meant to prevent white women from crossing state lines with immigrant men in the 1910s. And they're relying on the Commerce Clause. They can now apply this law to prevent you know, preachers and pastors from going on these trips, uh, these priests going on these trips with these young altar boys. That's an interesting dynamic to apply a law that was created for unjust reasons to bring about justice. Very well said, Uh, we're gonna follow this entire case. Uh, Typically you have no arrest when there's this big splash, Uh, but maybe the time is changing. Tonight we're working two developing stories of abuse in the Catholic Church, both in South Louisiana diocese. First, another Louisiana diocese releasing the names of priests with credible sex abuse allegations against them. Chris Welty joining us live from the Diocese of Lafayette. And Chris, were any of these priests assigned in Acadiana? 
Marcel, several of the accused priests served in St. Mary Parish. The Diocese of Homa and Thibodeau is the second diocese in the state of Louisiana to release the names of priests with credible accusations against them after promising to do so in October. In all, the diocese released the names of 14 priests who admitted were convicted or pled guilty to credible allegations of child sex abuse since the diocese was created in 1977. No priest in current active ministry is on that list, according to the diocese. On KTC.com, we have a full list of the priests' names, where they served, and the allegations against them. The Diocese of Lafayette has also said they will release their list of names of priests with credible accusations against them. So far, no timetable on when they'll release that list. Live in Lafayette, Chris Welty, KTC TV3. I didn't even know what that meant until today. In fact, I was working to avoid playing that song in the book club for as long as possible. The Catherine Massey Book Club at the Context of White Supremacy, today's date, September 1, 2022. So I have been told this is our second study session on Fred Rosen's The Bayou Strangler. Picking up on Chapter 6. So I not only did not want to play Lady Marmalade 1975, I didn't want to play that today. I also did not want to have to go back, hear about fondling white fathers again, but here we is. I wanted to play about Lafitte being a slave pirate. That really bothered me last week and that kind of being glossed over and he's just a patriot. Uh, pirate and all the rest but hey let's go ahead and get it out of the way right now with the Catholic Church this is white culture that report from Dr. Rashad Ritchie that was just literally a few days ago literally this investigation I mean this would be another one I'd say wow our timing is amazing now, I included the second report about Homa Thibodeau and them releasing their list as well. That was a few years back, but I mean, hey, take it all the way around. They said Ronald Dominic, convicted serial killer and rapist of black males. He was born and raised in Homa Thibodeau. 
So if he went to that parish or if he was going to the New Orleans diocese, either or, maybe he was fondled and raped as a child. Who knows? When they talked about the FBI investigation, which I hadn't even heard about until we started reading this book, they said they are using the Man Act to pursue some of these raping, fondling fathers. Wow. The great Jack Johnson. We are right on time. FBI Cointel Pro. We heard about that this summer already. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. That is how they unjustly pursued heavyweight champion Jack Johnson, who was just pardoned by former President Donald Trump not too long ago, I believe. That's also uh, Chuck Berry, I believe, who was also uh, convicted with the Man Act, White Slave Traffic Act as they call it. Anyway, last week, one of our investors, he said, is Catholicism just an accepted global pedophile ring masquerading as a Christian religion with so much evidence of its abuse of children over centuries and seemingly unwillingness of suspected racists to solve the problem? Anyway, as I said, I was hoping that we could start off with uh, something from Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told. We read that in the book club that put New Orleans sexual misconduct in context. I talked about that last week. In fact, this is straight from Chapter 7, The Half Has Never Been Told. The coercion of enslaved women continued in the 19th century. In one case, the South Carolina governor, James Henry Hammond, bought a woman and her daughter. The mother became his sexual partner. When her daughter reached 12, he made the girl his victim as well. He also molested his four white nieces, creating a scandal that ruined their marital prospects. Its effects on him were temporary, however, and he was elected to the U.S. Senate. Still, men like Hammond became increasingly circumspect in the Southeast. But the Southwestern region was different in several key ways. Many migrant whites came with the idea already in their heads that slavery's frontier was a white man's sexual playground. To be a gentleman here, wrote one visitor from New Orleans, one must patronize a yellow miss. If a young buck has one or two discarded lemons, his credit rises in proportion to the number. Supposedly, in arrangements called plassage, young white men contracted with mixed-race women for long-term sex work. More temporary associations were arranged at balls that were limited to white men and nightgown-clad women of color, who were, as one irate white woman fumed, heaven's last, worst gift to white men. The complaints about New Orleans reflected the fact that many Southwestern whites wanted proper forms of sexual morality to govern the public culture of the region. But that plan collapsed. The explosive growth of the interstate slave trade relentlessly forced the commodification of enslaved women's sexuality into view. Plackage. See, they got all these terms, call it Cajun Creole and all the rest of it, mulatto and all the rest of it. That is all rape. All of that whether it's generations removed and everything, brown paper bag test and all the rest of it, all of that is rape. That helps you understand what's happening with the Catholic Church, why these, you, what was happening with these young black males. As we said last week, that's the whole 200 years history 
of New Orleans, this part of Louisiana, and brag, even making songs, the song we're listening to right now, The House of the Rising Sun, bragging about a brothel in New Orleans. That's Lady Marmalade, Creole Lady Marmalade, bragging about sex workers in New Orleans. Know who the OG, the original whores of New Orleans are? Black boys and black girls if we had more time if we didn't have to waste time talking about raping catholic priests i would have played the segment where they talked about the slaves in new orleans they liked them young they got pictures and slave records and when i say young i mean like 10 and 12 that's the ogs the creole lady marmalades that they making songs and bragging about for 200 years and Nala. Audio segment one Bayou Strangler, Fred Rosen. Chapter six John Doe. Lafouche and Terrebonne Parishes, October 6, 2002. Kenneth Fitzgerald Randolph Jr. was a Bayou Blue man. He lived near the serial killer at 146 Charter Court, off Bayou Blue Road. He was convenient. Randolph was 5 foot 10 and 150 pounds of muscle. He had close-cropped black hair over a low forehead, deep-set brown eyes, a broad nose, and thick lips that concealed a knowing smile. His 20th birthday was coming up on August 29, but if he didn't watch it, he might spend it behind bars. About two years earlier, at age 18, Randolph had had his first arrest for carnal knowledge of a juvenile. Randolph was accused of having consensual sex with a person whose age was, according to official documents, between 13 and 17. His next arrest was for criminal damage of property. In Louisiana, this is a serious felony, punishable by up to 15 years of hard labor. But Randolph got a minimum sentence, which saw him quickly back on the street. Yet, he just couldn't stay out of trouble. He was arrested a second time for having sex with an underage person. The age is not referred to specifically in official documents to maintain the teen's anonymity. So far, Randolph had avoided hard jail time through the kinds of compromises common in the criminal justice system. But he liked having sex with kids a crime the perpetrator usually doesn't stop until he himself is stopped. Five months later, Randolph had sex with a third child. This time, he was handed a felony conviction, and yet Randolph was given a gift, a very light sentence of three years in prison, sentence suspended, with 18 months of supervised probation. Back on the street, Randolph the pedophile met Dominique the serial killer. Cane fields are common to southern Louisiana, where the warm climate nurtures the fibrous plant. It is one of the state's best crops. Fields stretch for miles. Finding them is no surprise. But discovering the naked body of a young black man lying in one is definitely uncommon. The corpse had been dumped, face down, in a cane field in Lafouche Parish, in a very rural area near a pumping station. The police cordoned off the area, 
while the criminalists scoured the field around the body for evidence. Approaching the body a short time later, Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Office Detective Tom Atkins noted that the victim was completely naked, except for the socks. He was still wearing white Champion brand socks. Detective Atkins looked at the body's position. It was sprawled arms forward and down, legs stretched out. It didn't look like Randolph had been there too long, but the heat and humidity had accelerated decomposition of the body. That made getting the corpse to the medical examiner all the more imperative. They didn't want any more decomposition that could destroy evidence of homicide. Wearing surgical gloves, Atkins picked up and examined the guy's wrists, which revealed ligature marks. The throat showed the same kind of ligature marks. At first glance, it looked like the victim had been bound and strangled. Also, the killer had positioned the body so that his buttocks stuck out. In addition to indicating M.O., body position is a fact known only by the perpetrator and the investigative team on the scene. It is knowledge the detective can later use to his or her advantage during the questioning of a suspect. Since only the killer would know such an intimate detail, admitting it during questioning could help seal a first-degree murder conviction and put him in the death chamber. That is, as long as the court admitted as evidence the killer's statement to the cops. Atkins made sure that the photographer on the scene got a close-up of the guy's rectum, he also made sure to ask the criminalists to print the guy before bagging him. Soon after returning to his office, Atkins had the results of the fingerprint check. Atkins contacted Randolph's family with the sad news of his death. Now it was time for the coroner to do his thing. Since his election 14 years earlier, Dr. Robert Truding had been the Jefferson County coroner. Truding was a very popular official. Some states don't require the coroner to be a medical doctor. Louisiana isn't one of them. By Louisiana state law, the coroner must be a medical doctor. Indeed, the multi-talented Truding helped to design and build Jefferson Parish Forensic Center in Harvey, Louisiana, one of the most advanced forensic facilities in the country. As a member of the Jefferson Parish Community Justice Agency, the coroner and his staff are charged with death and sexual assault investigations. By the time the corpse of Kenneth Randolph was placed on the forensic pathologist's table, his toe tag had changed. He had been the anonymous John Doe when found. Upon his fingerprint identification, that was changed to Kenneth Randolph, giving him back his humanity. The date was October 6, 2002. The next morning, at 9.50 a.m., forensic pathologist Brittany Summers began the autopsy. Detective Tom Atkins was present to lend a hand and gather evidence. The coroner collected oral and anal swabs and smears, pubic hair, head hair, right and left fingernail scrapings and clippings, and a purple tube of blood. Dr. Summers also collected hair from the left sock and parts of the body. Material like this that was gathered for the sexual assault kit could later be matched with the DNA of a suspect, providing the kind of direct evidence that would lead to a conviction. That is, unless the accused could afford a high-priced attorney who knew how to challenge the evidence. 
Randolph was cold to the touch. He had not made it the few weeks to his 20th birthday. His corpse was well-preserved, still in the middle stages of rigor mortis, which revealed that Randolph had been dead for only four or five hours, the time it takes for rigor mortis to fully set into a body. Summers looked at Randolph's head for signs of injury, including lacerations or bludgeoning. Nothing appeared abnormal as she examined his close-cropped, coarse, curly, dark brown hair. But there was a long, horizontal, linear abrasion on his forehead, extending down his neck and to his chest. Summers pulled the dead man's eyelids up and looked in his eyes, where she observed conjunctival congestion with petechiae and confluence hemorrhages. Strangulation. There were numerous small abrasions around his thighs and a linear red contusion on the right buttock. On the wrists, the pathologist saw a large contusion surrounding the right one and a smaller one on the left. It looked like Randolph's wrists had been tied up with something, the right wrist tighter than the left, which accounted for the wrist's hemorrhage. The body abrasions might indicate that the killer forced Randolph down onto his chest and forehead so he could have easy access to his anus. That would account for the numerous scrapes on his thighs and the cut on the right buttock. The coroner's lawful duty is to determine the cause of death. Picking up her scalpel, Summers cut into the neck and confirmed a hemorrhage on the underlying soft tissue surrounding the hyoid bone. The bone itself was intact, but there was a hemorrhage farther down the throat on the epiglottis, beneath the vocal cords of the larynx. Everything else was normal, nothing unusual in the body cavities and organs. Summers wrote in her summary, It is my opinion that Kenneth Randolph Jr. died as a result of strangulation. While a ligature mark was obvious, a component of manual strangulation cannot be excluded. The manner of death is homicide. That meant that for whatever reason, the killer had not only choked Randolph with some sort of rope, he had also choked him with his hands. It was unclear which came first though an educated guess might be that if the rope didn't do the job, the killer resorted to his hands. The autopsy had also proven that Randolph had been raped before death. The contents of the sexual assault kit and Randolph's clothing were turned over to Detective Atkins for tests. Dominique's kill total was now up to 11. He walked up to a house in Homa and rang the doorbell. You called for a pizza? He said brightly to the man who answered the door. Chapter 7 Big Julius and Noka Jones Homa and Lafouche Parishes October 12-15, 2002 Dominique had been living in Terrebonne Parish for almost three years. It was a backwater place that would become infamous as the home base of the new millennium's most horrific serial killings. In town, at a shabby apartment complex on Fremont Street, Shelley Weston was waiting in apartment B for her boyfriend to come back inside after smoking his cigarette. She called him Noka for short. His full name was Anoka T. Jones. Small and muscular, at five foot seven and 137 pounds, Noka was an affectionate man. 
Like many born into poverty, crime followed Noka, or he followed crime. His first conviction, in 1996, was for conspiracy to distribute illegal drugs. He followed that up a year later, with convictions for simple theft and battery. In 1997, he was arrested again for the same offenses, and was convicted once more. Noka dodged one court warrant after another. Noka, though, loved Shelley Weston. Maybe that would make a difference in the long run. When she got off work on Saturday afternoon, October 12, Weston went grocery shopping. Coming home between 7 and 7.30 p.m., Noka helped her put the groceries away. Then around 8, Noka left on his bicycle to get a pack of cigarettes. Trolling for his next victim, Ronald J. Dominique was driving in the area. As the Sonoma drifted down the street, Dominique spied a slim young black man on a bicycle just up ahead. The guy hadn't seen him yet. He had to make sure not to frighten him, lest he bolt or refuse the offer. Dominique expertly turned the wheel of the Sonoma to the right, coming up parallel to the guy on the bike. As his foot eased up on the gas pedal to match the cyclist's slower pace, he reached over and rolled down the passenger side window. Hey, can we talk? Dominique asked smoothly. Noka looked inside and saw nothing dangerous about the pudgy white guy. Hitting his brakes, he pulled his bike over to the curb. Straddling the seat of his bike, Noka and the guy began to chat through the open window of the Sonoma. Soon they had finished their conversation, and Noka began riding again. He rode at a fast clip up the block and back to his house. He had money on his mind. That always motivated him. As he came in the front door, his girlfriend noticed that Noka already had a cigarette, like he was ready to light up. Where are you going? She asked. I'm just going to stand outside and smoke a cigarette, Noka said. Okay, she replied. No harm in that. First, though, Noka brought his bicycle inside the house. He relied on the bike for transportation, as did many of Homa's poorer residents. Like every night, Noka hugged and kissed Weston. I love you, he said quietly. Then he was out the door. Weston didn't worry about it when she went to sleep and Noka wasn't there. Going out for a smoke wasn't to be taken literally. What it really meant was that sometimes he wasn't back until late. He had things to do. Noka Jones didn't have to worry about the long-term effects of smoke on the lungs of his 26-year-old body. He was in the fatal back seat of Dominique's Black Sonoma. It was about 10 o'clock, and the highway was crowded with cars going up to the Big Easy for the night. The other side of the highway was also crowded, because everyone knew that Homa had better Cajun and Creole cooking than New Orleans, and at half the price, no less. Or you could just drift into one of the bars, where for less than ten bucks you got a full plate of shrimp, fresh from the Gulf, with mayonnaise and ketchup to make your own remoulade sauce. Dominique didn't know whose body was in the back seat. He couldn't remember the guy's name, or even if he'd said his name. Who cared? Covered by a blanket, Dominique had the right idea. To get rid of it. Last thing he needed was for a cop to stop him with a body in the back. He had left Homa for Lafouche. 
Some miles further on, he was almost in his home parish. He got on Interstate 310 toward New Orleans and drove down the now-familiar ramp, passing the black-and-white Jefferson County Sheriff's Office squad car parked at the foot, waiting for speeders. Inside the Sonoma, Dominique's groin was throbbing. The thrill of having the body in the back seat and driving past the cop, who was unaware of what had happened, was just tremendous. If he could have slowed down to make the thrill last longer, he would have. But to do that would be to invite attention. He kept going, made a left, and disappeared from view. The next morning, Officer John Smith was on active patrol in the Booty area. At about 10.30 a.m., he happened to see, out the window of his squad car, a black man wearing a blue shirt and black shorts, lying motionless. Smith was on a dirt road under the Interstate 310 overpass on the northbound side. The officer parked and walked slowly toward the victim. Looking down at him, still not touching anything, Smith saw dried blood around the victim's mouth. He was lying forward on his stomach, and Smith could also see a small laceration on his lower back. Smith bent down and took his wrist pulse. Nothing. He tried the jugular veins. Still nothing. No surprise there. The body was rigid. Rigor mortis had set in. Smith saw drag marks on the dirt road. They appeared to have been made by the victim's hands after being dragged in an eastward direction. He saw that the victim's shirt was raised midway up his chest, while his shorts were down to the mid-thigh area. Smith was a patrol officer, not a manhunter. His job was to take the initial observations and then bring in the pros. It was time to turn it over to the detectives and criminalists. Smith called it in, advised the parish detective bureau and the patrol supervisor of what he'd found, then moved to secure the crime scene. Quickly, he set up the yellow crime scene tape that would keep unwanted eyes away from a full murder investigation. Answering Smith's summons was Detective James DeFelice. DeFelice observed not only the drag marks made from the victim's hands, but also tire impressions that would be consistent with a car. DeFelice deduced that the killer drove in pulled the body out of the car by the feet so the hands dragged in the dirt, and then dumped it and drove away. The killer did nothing to disguise the body or the dump site. Criminalists arrived and used latent fingerprint-lifting tape on the legs, arms, and right hand of the deceased in an attempt to collect any small trace of fiber or hair that might be present and could later be matched to the perpetrator. Detective DeFelice, meanwhile, had no idea he and Dennis Thornton had something in common. They were searching for the same killer. DeFelice hadn't seen the sketch of the Louisiana serial killer, knew nothing about him, and had no reason to attribute this homicide to anyone other than a run-of-the-mill murderer. The first thing to do was figure out who the victim was. A search of his pockets turned up nothing. DeFelice left the scene to the criminalists marking off bits of evidence with their red cones. Soon the morgue attendants came and performed their routine tasks. The John Doe was wrapped in a clean white sheet, placed into a standard polyurethane body bag, and zipped up for transport to the county morgue. Back at headquarters, 
DeFelice ran the victim's prints through the FBI and state computer database in an attempt to identify the victim. Up came the match, Anoka T. Jones, along with his criminal record. Now they had a name they could put to the John Doe on the coroner's table. A good autopsy answers all the questions about how a victim dies. Its success or failure is dependent on the person performing the autopsy, and more importantly, on their considered observations. On October 14, at promptly 7 a.m., Tyler Bodie, the parish coroner, looked down at the body of Anoka Jones. He noticed the neck abrasions. Writing a short time later in his summary of the cause of death, Dr. Bodie said, With the historical and investigation information presently available, cause of death, as determined by autopsy and toxicological analysis, is considered to be asphyxia by strangulation, neck ligature. Manner of death is considered to be homicide. Detectives went over to Noka's home, where they found his girlfriend still anxiously awaiting his return. They showed Summers a photograph of Noka's face, taken before the autopsy. Identifying it, she gave the cops the basic information about the bike and the cigarette, then broke down sobbing when they told her of the discovery. Leaving Noka's girlfriend to her grief, the police next focused their attention on one of Noka's friends, Leon Lorette. At the shabby house he shared with his mother, Lorette told them that the last time he'd seen Noka was on the evening of October 13 at about 9 p.m. I had asked Noka to come over and help me move some speakers, Lorette told detectives. He did, and after we finished, he asked to use the phone. My mother let him. He spoke for a second, then hung up. I'll see you later, T. Paul, he had said, using Lorette's nickname, and walked out the door. Back in Homa, where Noka Jones had lived, the Terrebonne Parish Detective Squad had already sent out detectives to investigate potential criminal activity Jones might have been involved in. They came back with the information that Noka sold drugs for two local dealers, Josh Beamer and Barry Greenberg. He also owed them money, which could certainly be a motive to murder him, but not to rape him. They soon found a friend, Belle Grimond, who spoke to Noka shortly before his murder. He called her on the phone at about 10.30 p.m. to tell her that he had some shake, crack cocaine crumbs, and to ask if she wanted to smoke some with him. She told him she no longer smoked and hung up the phone. Further investigation brought forth a possible witness by the name of Ron Gibbons. Gibbons told detectives that he was at the corner of Naquin Street and Hobson Street with Noka when a gray truck with its lights off approached them. When the truck stopped, two guys came out and confronted Noka, who took off running. In the back seat was Big Julius. Gibbons didn't know his real name. Continued digging turned up the name of one of Noka's known drug associates, Julius Bellows, a.k.a. Big Julius. Figuring he could be the prime suspect, the deputies seized Bellows's car, and began a search for trace blood evidence while detectives spoke with him. Big Julius claimed Noka used to come over to his house all the time to buy crack, but he denied any involvement in his former customer's death. If anyone says I did it, he told detectives, he's a liar. I will give you hair samples, shoe samples, or anything if you want to clear me of any involvement.
Because he was cooperative, the cops believed him. Bellows was released from custody. Besides, still another suspect had emerged. He was Jesus Gonder, a.k.a. Tricky. Hailing from Houston, he was a 27-year-old black man with a record of small-time drug felonies. He also was pretty good at hiding out. They couldn't find Tricky. Lafouche detectives pored over their interview reports and other evidence in their case files. At the same time, their counterparts in Jefferson were doing exactly the same thing on the body dump job in their venue, that of Kenny Randolph. Thornton doesn't remember who it was that first saw the similarities in the homicides and reached out. But he soon found himself in a room with detectives from Lafouche Parish, comparing notes on the murders of Vinoka Jones and Kenny Randolph. Thornton saw the similarities. He figured, correctly, that the guy who killed Noka Jones was the serial killer he was hunting. Interviews were set up with friends and close relatives of both decedents to see if they had any common enemies. Once again, Summers told police her story, adding nothing new. She knew none of the people involved in the Randolph case. Others were re-interviewed, too. No links. For Dennis Thornton, it wasn't so much disappointing as it was disheartening. Thornton had a street cop's common sense. The detective from Jefferson Parish knew it was no accident the victims didn't rate a line of print or one soundbite. They weren't considered valuable enough by anyone to be a priority one way or the other. There was, therefore, no internal pressure to bring the killer to justice. To Dennis Thornton, that made no difference. He couldn't, wouldn't let it go, which was just as well. Back in Terrebonne Parish, Dominique hooked his trailer up to his Sonoma and prepared to tow it out of the shipyard. The Bayou Blue Man was on the move. Time to troll. Part 2. The Investigation Chapter 8. Grandpa Socks Terrebonne Parish, Saturday, May 24, 2003 Daytrell Woods was a real piece of work. Released from jail a few months earlier, the teenager was hanging out on a sunny spring afternoon at his house, which he shared with his mother and sister on Buron Street in Homa. About three o'clock, Daytrell changed clothes in his bedroom, then relaxed for the next three hours. At six, Daytrell was talking to his cousin, Frank Wilson, who was visiting. I'm going to stay at my girlfriend's house in Mott Trailer Park, Daytrell informed his cousin. Wilson had something a little bit more important on his mind. Look, my mom got a call from a man who said he was going to kill everyone in the house if he did not get his rings back, said Wilson. It seemed that Daytrell was engaged in a little habit of breaking and entering. Or, put another way, he was a burglar who preferred the same victim. Daytrell had been continually breaking into this dude's house at the corner of Elder Street and stealing stuff. He claimed the guy had given him permission to take some of his things as payment for a debt. Daytrell also tried to sell the Brooklyn Bridge for $5 to anyone who was interested. Daytrell went back over to the dude's house. When he emerged a short while later, his friend Gary Birdwright was waiting for him. They had served time in prison together. A car pulled up to the curb, 
a Toyota Celica, with a few other people in it. Gary opened the door. Daytrell was ready to dive in when the words made him freeze. Daytrell, would you get me a glass of water? His mother, Margaret Woods, called from the ramshackle house. Like a good son, Daytrell reversed direction and went back in the house. After getting his mother the water, Daytrell came out of the house a second time. He was wearing a white polo shirt that hung longer in the rear than the front, with light green stripes near the buttons. He had on the brown socks he'd gotten as a present from an aunt, which Daytrell called his grandpa socks. Over them, he sported black three-quarter top Nikes with a silver swoosh. Daytrell got into the Celica, and it drove off. Interviewed later, Daytrell's mother, Margaret, remembered things a little differently. Daytrell had been walking on Buron Street with a white guy named Gary when another white guy, who was sitting on the driver's side, and the white girl, who was sitting on the passenger side, passed my house in a white car. It had black stripes. They turned off Leona Street, back onto Buron. That's when she called her son back to get her the water. Maybe it was a premonition, or perhaps that elusive bond between mother and son. Whatever it was, Margaret Woods felt something was wrong. The water story was just that, a pretext to get her baby boy back in the house where he was safe and sound. Daytrell, don't leave, she pleaded with her son once he was safely inside. Daytrell thought a moment. I'm going to stay by my friend's house, he reassured his mother reasonably. She knew that Daytrell hung with Gary, but she reminded him that he had an appointment down at Social Security on May 27. Daytrell ignored the remark. He could take care of Social Security at any time. Besides, Daytrell had left his bike at Gary's house. It was his major means of transportation, and he needed it. Daytrell got his mother the water and left her house. His mother watched him get into the Toyota Celica with Gary, and the car drove off into a dark abyss. Hood, 21 years old, felt like riding his three-wheeler. So he got together with his cousin, Joshua Robichaud, a 23-year-old dirt bike enthusiast, to go out dirt biking together. I was riding my dirt bike in the field off of Highway 56 near Woodlawn Ranch Road. My cousin, Corey Hood, was riding his three-wheeler. While he was riding, Corey's chain came off. We was headed toward Woodlawn Ranch Road. I took a left on the dirt road and saw something lying in the road. When I saw it, it looked like a body, said Robichaud. Robichaud rode closer to see if he was right. He stopped and saw that it was indeed a body. It looked like it had been there for a while, because the corpse was puffy. There was also a bicycle lying a couple of feet away from his head. Robichaud turned the wheels of his dirt bike around and rode back to where Corey was still stuck. It looks like someone's laying in the dirt road, Robichaud shouted. Corey finished fixing his chain and hopped on the seat. They rode back purposefully to view the corpse together. It was now covered with flies. To a pathologist, that would indicate the body had been there for some time and decomposition was well along. Corey figured correctly that there was nothing they could do for him but call the police. Getting back on the bikes, they rode quickly to a nearby casino, where they hailed an employee who was dumping trash outside. 
Call the police because we saw a body, Robichaux announced to the surprised worker. We found a body in the cane field, Corey added. The worker ran for a phone and dialed 911. A few minutes later, two police officers arrived. Pulling up in their marked units, they asked the cousins to show them where the body was. The boys told the police the location, and they headed that way. The cousins got back on their bikes and rode after them, to view what would now be considered a crime scene and later a dump site. The second time viewing the body, Corey took in more detail. He noted that the black man wore blue jean shorts and brown socks. Curiously, he wasn't wearing a shirt. Detective Simon Fryman of the Homa City Police Department was at home when he got the call from dispatch. When Fryman arrived at the location, he was met by uniformed officers and briefed on the situation. They took the detective over to speak with Robichaux and Hood, who told them of their grisly discovery. They had found a black man who was dead and puffy. Fryman thought about that for a moment, taking note of the weather. It was partly cloudy and about 85 degrees. It had been several days since it had rained. The ground in the area was very dry and arid. On closer inspection, Fryman noticed that there was no dirt on the bottom of the victim's socks. That implied that he was dumped rather than dragged to the location. The detective saw that lying just south of the body was a bicycle, a red beach cruiser. Fryman noticed the clean treads. There was no dirt on the tires. Nor were there tire tracks to indicate that the bike had been ridden into the area. But there were impressions made in the dirt by the handlebar and the pedal. It appeared someone had physically thrown the bike down. The detective noted that the victim's face was quite swollen and that large blisters were forming on the body. Fryman looked at the eyes, but because of the decomposition, he was unable to detect any petechial hemorrhaging. He also spotted a tattoo on the right arm, the letters VW. As if things weren't strange enough, there was more, a fluid-like substance around the body. Yet, the detective couldn't identify any injuries from which the fluid might have seeped nor was there any identification on the body. The guy had really been stripped. Once criminalists arrived on the scene, Fryman rolled the victim onto his side and checked for any possible injuries. None were visible. Preservation was all important. The body was bagged and taken away. Due to the state of decomposition and the stink of the body as it decayed, it was immediately shoved into the freezer at the morgue. The cold would stop both. They'd keep him on ice for a while, and then the detectives could come in and fingerprint the victim to get his identification. A few hours later, the body was removed from the cooler to be fingerprinted by investigator Donald McCord. Fryman and his investigative team then went to the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office Crime Lab, where he requested a fingerprint comparison be done using the Automated Fingerprint Identification System. AFIS database. The results were phoned to him that evening. We've got a confirmation on the fingerprints, said the excited voice of Detective Frank Ferran over the phone. Ferran explained that a sergeant with the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office Crime Scene Unit had called him earlier with a match to a subject named Daytrell Woods. 
It may have been a big parish, but it was a small town. On a case in the past, Fryman had encountered the Woods family. Fryman knew Daytrell Woods' mother, Margaret, and that the Woods family resided on Elder Street. He remembered that the last time he spoke to her, the family was in the process of moving. Fryman didn't know if they had indeed moved out or not, but Elder Street seemed like a good place to start the field investigation. When Fryman and the detectives arrived at the Elder Street address, the first thing they noticed was that there were no curtains hanging at the windows. Looking inside, they didn't see any furniture. The place was clearly unoccupied. Fryman knew of a Woods relative, Ellen Finch, on Main Street. They drove over to question her, but she wasn't home. Fryman recalled that Finch was employed at the McDonald's, located near the intersection of Grand Caillou Road and Industrial Boulevard. They found Ellen's husband, Cyrus, sitting there in the parking lot. Do you know where I can find Margaret Woods? Fryman asked. Check with my wife inside, Cyrus said, gesturing to the hamburger joint. Ellen Finch was working the takeout window. Fryman flashed his badge and asked where Margaret Woods lived. Finch gave him an address on Buron Street. When they got there, Fryman asked the man who opened the door if he could speak to Margaret Woods. A few minutes later, she appeared, and Fryman walked her outside to his car. When was the last time you saw your son, Daytrell? he asked softly. Yesterday, said Margaret. No, it could not have been yesterday, Fryman replied bearing in mind the condition of the body. Margaret thought again. It was during the weekend, she answered. I talked to him about an appointment he has with the Social Security Department. They chatted a bit longer about a few of the details of the last time she saw her son. As Fryman listened, he knew it was leading to the inevitable. Detectives recovered the remains of an individual in a cane field off Woodlawn Road, near Highway 56, that was identified as Daytrell. Margaret listened, shocked at the details of the discovery. She started sobbing and ran inside to tell her family the dreadful news. Family members came outside and began shouting questions at the detective. But Fryman had a question of his own. He allowed family members to look at the bike that they had recovered near the body. Was this Daytrell's? he asked. Sure enough, it was identified as Daytrell's bicycle. Everywhere he went, Daytrell rode that exact bicycle. He was never far from it. On May 28, Dr. Susan Garcia performed the autopsy on Daytrell Woods at the state-of-the-art Jefferson Parish Forensic Center. The preliminary results showed no signs of trauma to the body. There were no signs of Woods having been shot or stabbed. Blunt force trauma was ruled out as well. There were no wounds, defensive or otherwise. There were also no signs that the feet or hands of their victim had been bound. But the body had been preserved long enough to note that cause of death was asphyxiation. He'd been strangled. Although toxicology results would take a few days, they had the cause of death and didn't expect anything unusual to be revealed in the report. The family did tell the police about Daytrell's friend, Gary. Was he a suspect? Fryman and some other detectives rode on horseback to the dump site 
for a more intensive search. Slowly, the horses were directed around the area. The detectives eyed everything for evidence or clues. Unfortunately, their search was fruitless. Once back at the station, a detective handed Fryman Daytrell Woods' record. Fryman wasn't surprised to learn that Woods had been locked up in the juvenile jail system, starting in 1996. Put into custody at Bridge City, a group home, he left in 2000. But soon, he was in trouble again. Woods was sent to Jetson Correctional Center, and then Swanson Correctional Center in Tallulah. In reading the records, Fryman noticed that Woods had been cared for by social worker Jeanette Dupree. He called her office. She wasn't in, and he left a message with the receptionist for her to call back. Then he got a phone call from a good Samaritan. A man named Jonathan Burdick said that about 12.30 to 1 p.m. on Sunday, he was passing the area near where the body had been found when he saw a white or cream-colored car parked on the dirt road in the cane field. That appeared suspicious to him. Burdick wasn't sure exactly what kind of car it was, or if anybody was in it. But as he looked back, it appeared that the car was moving. Once Burdick turned onto Louisiana Highway 56, he couldn't see it anymore. No sooner had Fryman hung up the phone than it rang again. Jeanette Dupree was returning his call. Dupree told Fryman that Woods had been in correctional centers for two years. She said the only other person she knew from Homa who had been locked up with Woods was James Jefferson. Jefferson and Woods got along. She added some sad details. Daytrell's family was not supportive of him at all. They were barely in touch with Daytrell while he was in lockdown. How about visitors? The family had virtually no contact. They wouldn't even supply him with basic necessities, like underclothes. He said his mom never called. Oh, and Daytrell was slow in his learning capabilities. By early afternoon, Fryman had found Woods's brother, Willie Woods, at the family home on Buron Street. They brought him in for questioning. Willie recalled his last meeting with his brother vividly. He'd seen Daytrell on Saturday evening, about 6 p.m. Then he added, Before you picked me up, my mom got a call from a man who said he was going to kill everyone in the house if he did not get his rings back. It seemed that Daytrell had stolen the guy's rings. Fryman returned to the Royal Flush Casino, where the cousins had found the worker who made the 911 call. He asked Sam Blaine, the head of security for the casino, to check his surveillance cameras for anything suspicious. He gave him CDs to burn in case he found information that he could copy and pass on to the detectives. Now it was time to get to Gary. The Woods family had identified him as Gary Stevens. They drove out to Robert Street, where Stevens lived with his mother. He wasn't home, but his mother was. Gary's somewhere in Bayou Blue and hasn't been home recently, she said. Fryman also spoke to Gary's brother, Jonathan, who said that neither he nor Gary hung out with Woods. People been saying that we hang together, but neither of us hung with Daytrail, he told Fryman. A few days later, Fryman received a phone call that Stevens had been located. He was back home. Fryman immediately picked Stevens up, 
and took him to the Homa Police Department headquarters for an interview. He was very cooperative. Last time I saw Daytrell was about a month ago, said Stevens. I was never locked up with Daytrell. The only time I was locked up was approximately three years ago for a burglary. The detectives were curious if he had a girlfriend. I don't have a girlfriend. Haven't had one for about a year. I really don't think I'm the Gary Daytrell's family talked about. The only friends I hang out with are P. Dot and John, and I don't know their names, and I stay on Jerome Court on the east side of Homa. Do you know Willie Woods? Fryman asked. I'm familiar with Willie. I hung out with him or knew him from school, but I never hung out with Daytrell, and I was never at Daytrell's house. Based on the interview, Gary Stevens did not appear to be the subject the family was referring to, who was hanging around with Daytrell. But one thing was for sure. Daytrell Woods wasn't going to make his Social Security appointment any time soon. Through his research, Fryman eventually became aware of the previous killings. He made the linkage to the serial killer working southern Louisiana. Dennis Thornton was contacted. Looking at the Daytrell Woods case file, Thornton knew immediately the suspect was the serial killer he'd been tracking through the end of the last millennium. A few articles about the murders had appeared in local papers and didn't go national. Thornton knew a lack of resources was preventing the police from solving the case. He knew it was needed, a full-fledged task force dedicated to tracking the murderer down. That way they could pool all their resources. But to upper-level authorities, the murderer who had killed Daytrell Woods and the others was just one guy. And the victims, well, no one really wanted to talk about what the killer had done to them. There were many other murderers, drug dealers, and thieves working the parishes who also needed to be caught. And maybe some of those victims were taxpayers, unlike the hustlers who were the serial killer's victims. Thornton recalls of the case, the attitude was, don't break your neck. Nobody will be Nobody missed. Will be missed. We were supposed to be listening to Patti LaBelle ballads. Patti LaBelle not talking about Creole sex working, all of that. Yes, that's what we were supposed to be listening to. Mm. Catherine Massey Book Club, context of white supremacy. We will resume with chapter 9 in the Bayou Strangler. The number is 
The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have commentary. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Now they said white man's playground at the beginning. Half has never been told. White man's paradise. All same thing. Go to New Orleans. Take advantage of the Negras. Males and females. And then brag about it. Make songs about it. The email address untiljustice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com lots of folks uh, wrote in commentary many people noted the many 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 uh, parallels between this here book and the book that we just finished on old Joey 22 we even had a number of people that are still writing about that book we are still going to be talking about Buffalo so I'll just add those when we resume with Buffalo still on my mind as well uh, but sticking to the book that we are reading for today there's so many folks who wrote in I will start see if I can nab one of those first let's see okay first person uh, wrote in let's see uh, okay I wasn't able to listen live I will strive to get notes in uh, the beginning of the week <coughs> This book was written for the white gaze, just as the other so-called true crime books, because white people kill for fun. (sighs) Had to get that in. White people read about horrors for fun. I noticed the author places extra emphasis on Detective Thornton. He's so smart, so well-dressed, so savvy, a real pro. The Southern detectives on this case have advanced college degrees allied with street smarts and a healthy lack of prejudice towards gay men. It took this smart detective eight years to catch this sloppy, uneducated white supremacist. High school dropout? Lack of prejudice towards gay men when all the victims are black, though some were gay, some were not. I found that many reports (coughs) will put pictures of the black victims up but refuse to write black or African American to, to describe them. Some reports say all the men and boys were majority homeless but not black. This is deliberate. Louisiana has very heavy French, African, Spanish, Native American, and French Canadian influences, helping to account for its Cajun character. If I recall correctly, France is a country, Spain is a country, Native American and French Canadian are ethnic groups African is a continental designation where are the Algerians or Egyptians or Libyans or were these slaves from the European dominated slave coast of West Africa this is in my opinion obfuscates and minimizes context and contributions by black people Uh, the author mentioned Dukes of Hazzard who drove around in a car named the General Lee 
for Confederate and slave owner General Robert E. Lee, a car with a giant Confederate flag on the hood, on the roof. The Dukes probably get their name from notable white extremist David Duke, who was active in Louisiana at the time of the show airing. White people are not ignorant. They actually remade that a few times. I think we even talked about it on the cows way back. Uh, I think they remade the movie and yeah, anyway. Uh, New Orleans metropolitan area has the highest per capita homicide rate in the country because the white supremacists deprive the residents of resources, jobs, access, and more. Uh, I put in my notes about Dominic's love of Christmas and decorations year round as religion of white supremacy. That's what somebody else said too. Uh, chapter five, the Catholic church and local police in many venues from Boston to Los Angeles conspire to protect pedophilic priests. It confounds me how either institution is still credible with their collective records of malfeasance. Both are essential for the system of racism to continue. Naming a max security penal colony farming prison for an African nation, Angola, is a deliberate act of racism. I have never heard of a state naming a prison England or Scotland from rich from which real convicted prisoners were sent to American colonies by King George. That Australia too? Work seemed to fill up his time and for a while he appeared redeemed. He seemed to enjoy helping people. He was a good employee and tried to be a solid member of the community. Having studied Western white film, one of the most recurring tropes in that of is that of redemption. I think the system of racism, white supremacy, continues new lows of depravity is that there's always an image of redemption within view where a killer or doer of bad deeds can see himself return to good scruples. The white media, film, TV, books, games often reserve this treatment for white people. Meanwhile, blacks get Angola. In the wake of Al-Qaeda's attack on the Twin Towers, the nation had a whole lot of things more important to worry about. More collective white fear about non-white people, for sure. That was Bush the first time. Excuse me, second time. Uh, Dominic believed it was a it was the black pepper that led to his operation and the tight stitch up. It was actually due to a bacterial infection. This man believes black pepper caused his problem, and he proceeds to go out and kill black men. Something tells me Joey Christophers would do the same, not the Rick James. Hmm. Long live Rick James. Uh, email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, we will get to the other uh, emails uh, as we. Pro- well, I don't know. So many of them. Should I read more? Should I read one more right now? Let's see. Read. I guess I'll read a little bit of our, our investor. He shared the information about Lady Marmalade. And he didn't even give any details. He just put that in the list of there are many, many songs, apparently, that are written about New Orleans and their history of sexual debauchery. Lady Marmalade is one. And they've redone that. In fact, that song, I think, unless I've been misinformed, is the only song in history to go number one twice on the U.S. and U.K., charts if that means anything to anybody but a song about the sex workers in New Orleans Hmm. 
Anyway, so a different person, investor, he wrote in, uh, with all the discussion about anti-sexual behavior in the text, I did a little research on popular songs glorifying New Orleans prostitution anti-sexual behavior. One, House of the Rising Sun, we heard that one at the beginning, by the animals, what a name, refers to a brothel in New Orleans named after Madame Marianne Le Soleil. Leviant, which means rising sun in French, 1964, number one U.S. chart hit. Number two, Brown Sugar, the Rolling Stones, references New Orleans and the rape of slave girls, 1971, number one U.S. chart hit. And I think there's been some controversy about this where they are not going to sing it anymore and acknowledging the racism of it and the original OG whores of New Orleans, black boys and black girls. Number three, Lady Marmalade. We heard that one at the beginning. Number one, two times, U.S. and U.K. Number four, Formation. Beyonce, the lyrics don't contain references to prostitution per se, but does reference Louisiana and miscegenation. Cowbell, the critically acclaimed video, some say, references Lulu White, a notorious New Orleans octoroon, all that rape again, octoroon madam who some say serves as Beyonce's alter ego in the video 2016 number 14 US chart hit was one of the most critically acclaimed songs and videos of the year isn't it all again bragging about the history of rape and debauchery in New Orleans chapter 6 number 1 states don't have medical doctors as coroners in 2006 a bus with Taylor College white students was involved in an accident in Indiana Whitney Serac was misidentified as one of her classmates and declared dead by the coroner who was not a physician. These jobs, I suspect, are elected positions or appointed political patronage jobs, particularly in small towns without much regard for credentials. System of white supremacy racism like, wow, you can go fill out the resume with a crown sometimes, like depending on the circumstances, what have you, and eh. Penmanship's not so bad. All right, you can be coroner. <laughs> like, what in the world? Number two, uh, matched with DNA of a suspect unless the accused could afford a high-priced attorney. To me, this is an obvious reference to OJ. How could it not be? Like, oh, that nigga. And this book was published in 2017, so we're talking like, what is that, 20 years <laughs> after the OJ Simpson trial? And I still got No count, nigga, Johnny. Chapter 7. Number 1. The victims did not rate a line of print. They weren't considered valuable enough. The man not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Book club as well. No one who will be missed got that sound clip in at the beginning. The great pulp fiction, which was at the time of these killings, late 90s, same time as O.J. Simpson, really. Um, let's see. And isn't that what they say for black male privilege when you have black guys get killed they get all the press and media accounts and t-shirts and everybody knows their name nothing not even a what is it the, a half eaten bag of peanuts nothing chapter 8 the trail woods was a real piece of work I was offended by this remark the non-white victims in this book are incredibly pathetic as is Gusty they are for the most part engaged in petty non-violent crimes minor drug dealers who in many circumstances were homeless they can't even afford a car and travel around on bicycles the author continually engages in the typical black misandry of a suspected racist they are not worthy of empathy even in death no one who will be missed. 
I thought that was a, a disgusting line as well. Like, really? <laughs> a real piece of work. Hmm. And now he's dead. So good riddance. We should be happy he's gone, right? <laughs> Number two, Detrell, a white guy named Gary, another white guy, and the white girl. Detrell, Detrell never realized he was in such grave danger until... Until it was too late. That was Ricky Wallace. That started with that. Now, we're not going to hear about Ricky Wallace until, like, the end. Probably uh, two weeks from now, because this book is short. Uh, but, man, that was such a striking moment when he said that. And it was like he recognized. Uh, even, you know, afterwards, he's safe now. And this guy's been convicted and will never leave Angola. But, like, man, not recognizing until, oh, man. And hanging out with all these white people and all that. And then, oh, man. Even after there start to be news reports that, hey, there's a killer, but they're not even, they didn't do a whole lot of reports and they weren't specific. So, yeah. Number three, uh, Detrell's uh, family was not supportive. No contact, wouldn't supply him with basic necessities, was slow in learning Terrebonne Parish, Jetson Correctional Center, Swanson Correctional Center, uh, Tallulah. Detrell's attempted family was probably barely surviving themselves. Suspected racists never make it easy for families to support incarcerated family members, for sure. Sometimes they make it deliberately difficult. Number four, Detrell Woods wasn't going to make his Social Security appointment anytime soon. Hardy, har, har. This strikes me as a racist joke. I thought the exact same thing. Like, really? <laughs> what, what in the weather? No one who will be missed. Good riddance, the trail, and we will mock you in dead. Guess, guess we didn't have to spend all that time worrying about that appointment after all. <laughs> Woo! I'll be here all week. Like, what? Blackmail privilege. Uh, let's see. All right, now we'll get to the phone lines, and then we'll get to all the folks who dialed in. Uh, enormous gratitude. We had a bevy of listeners who helped me get the audiobook. Much obliged. And they were like jolly about it too. They weren't, you know, God darn it, gotta be pestering us, Gus T, and get your own stuff, and blah, blah, blah. Happy to do it. Let me know what you need, and blah, blah, blah. And I have several folks like absolutely amazing. And we can, you know, hopefully learn a lot. All the folks who are tuning in and sharing their thoughts, writing in and listening archive, all that good stuff. So, huge enormous thanks all of us who are listening in thank you as well much obliged uh folks who dialed in star six one if you have commentary to share proceed have you heard yes sir uh if you could uh speak up a tad that would be grand maybe get closer a little bit closer to your mic uh can you hear me clearly now sir Yes, you're good. Just use lots of black self-respect. Yes, sir. <clears throat> greetings, everyone on the line, and greetings to Gus, Gus the host. Um, I just had a couple things. Um, the part where the, I guess the author said, um, crime followed him, or he followed crime. To me, that that will be an act of white supremacy on the author's part. Um, and the other part will be... <clears throat> Comparing uh, this book and how it how it uh, uh, talks about the victims, um, it, it's it's similar to the last book. Uh, it, it vilifies the victims, while while at the same time trying to 
garner sympathy for a white supremacist serial killer. Um, and the reason why I called him a white supremacist is because his main target was black males. And no one will be missed. But that's all I have for now, Gus. And thank you for taking my call. And thank you for this uh, interesting book. Oh, okay. Thank you. I was like, what is going on here? This is crazy. I'm not picking up my, my volume. Grand. Thank you all. I was uh, just having brief tech issues. No one who will be missed. Uh, our caller who uh, I heard everything that you uh, shared, sir. Much lot. I see a lot of parents. So many people that uh, wrote in. I, maybe even some of the people who are going to talk as well. But they pointed out this is so similar to the book that we just read. My goodness. And the lack of empathy for the victims sympathy towards the uh, racist killer. I think we've been calling him a racist serial killer. I know at least I have. I don't know if I'd said white supremacist serial killers often, but I think I've been calling him racist serial killer. I, absolutely. Absolutely. He's been killing black people. What else would you, you know, what else would you accurately call him? Uh, but no sympathy uh, for the victims at all. Uh, other folks dialed in with commentary to share. Proceed. Uh, can I be heard uh, Nick over the road yes sir yes sir greetings guys um, <clears throat> I kind of yeah um, the jokes kind of rang out to me too you know um, what kind of caught me was that um, like they weren't human or they didn't have any humanity until they were named. Um, I mean, even after they didn't show any empathy or sympathy or, or anything like that. Um, that's just some of the stuff that I noticed. And even after the, um, the social security office joke, um, did they ever mention, cause I was distracted a couple of times. Did they, did they ever mention following up to see if he made his appointment or when his appointment was? I don't think I heard anything on that. Well, he got killed, so you know that was that was part of the joke that you know I guess he won't make that appointment. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Um, that's that's all. Just even after they were named and, he, and their humanity was apparently restored, they still didn't show any sympathy or, or empathy towards the, the victims or the families of the victims. And that's all I had to share for now. I'll mute myself. Much obliged, Nick over the road. Very some I don't know, like <clears throat> I would have to I'm not a Dahmer expert. We had folks who said, Hey, why don't you read Jeffrey Dahmer? He killed a lot of black people. Blah, blah. It's like, man, we read, you know, well, we didn't read, but we had the author of a Dahmer biography on the program before, and then we did a whole program where Dr. Welsing talked about that case. So at least we have done, you know, time investigating that case and what have you, but there are like thousands, thousands of books and reports and studies and projects and films that white people have done on Jeffrey Dahmer in addition to all the other serial killers like wow is this what this genre is filled with like you get to sit around and talk ooh let's get the coroner's report and how was his anus fixed and ooh ooh how did they get the saw to chop his head ooh how many black people did he kill ooh tell us about these home I mean is that the whole genre and then you can make jokes <laughs> about the 
about the dead niggers that got killed and you know learn about these smart white guys that evaded authorities for years and killed all these people and hacked I mean is that the is that the genre true crime and serial killers and all that is that you know what does it mean to be white that's Charles I mean Charles Manson went and killed all those people and then tried to blame it on black people he's a celebrity other folks with a hand up um yeah I have a couple of things oh yes ma'am let's hear it let's hear it okay um there's a part where um dominique is going down the street and he sees uh anoka jones and um he looks in the truck and he, he said he saw nothing dangerous about the pudgy white guy i thought that uh was pretty interesting um later on he had him in the back seat and then it said Dominique didn't know whose body was in the back seat. He couldn't remember the guy's name or even if he'd said his name. Who cared? That was a uh, super insensitive, I guess. Um and then later they were talking and um the guy Lorette, Noka goes over to his house to help him move some speakers, right? And then he makes a phone call, and the phone call could have been to uh, Ronald Dominique. The police know about it, and it seems like they didn't even check to see who he called. I thought that was just, well, I don't know, they're supposed to be the police, these good detectives, and they were not, it didn't seem like they did any detective work about that. Um, also, the way that guy, Big Julius, was treated, Julius Bellows, the difference in between the way he was treated and the way Ronald Dominique was treated was striking. Um, when they were talking about Julius Bellows, the book said the police figured he could be a suspect, so they seized Julius Bellows' car and took him into custody. But at the beginning of the story, they had mitochondrial DNA evidence for Ronald Dominique, and they didn't want to arrest him because they needed to be absolutely sure. Like it said, ugh, this is graphic, but it said, the semen in his rectum had been genetically linked to their prime suspect, yet they hesitated to pick up their killer. So, yeah, that that's what I have right now. Much obliged, ma'am. Great comparison. Snatched up poor Julius. Uh, oh, man, that's uh, Pulp Fiction. I don't know if they changed any of these people's names. I think he did say he did some of that at the beginning. But if that is a change, that was uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction. Big Julius. Nobody who will be missed. Anyway, that is a extraordinarily important point because... There are many points in this story where Dominic could have been caught. This could have been stopped. And nobody who that that attitude the make it and that's a part of those racist jokes. You know. He guess he won't make that social security appointment after all. 
that's a part of those racist jokes. If it's if this guy's a real piece of work, then you know, eh, no big deal. Why do we need to hurry up? You know, about solving all this. Why do we need to go check every phone call and you know what have you? We'll just see if we. That's the same thing from Catherine Pellinero. Maybe some of these other negras, you know, maybe they did it. Not looking at Joey. Maybe this is some sort of nigra thing, a numbers racket thing. Maybe we'll check some of them out, see if they they were up to no good. You know, these guys were criminals anyway. Very similar between the two texts that we've read. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. May I be heard? Missy. South Carolina, <laughs> greetings to uh, non-Clemson grad as well. Yes, hello, Gus. Hello, Cal's listeners. Um, I some of the notes that I'll share um, are from last week's broadcast, but just a few things that I've noted in listening to um, the broadcast. Every time, every time Dominique has another victim. Um, the author goes into great detail about the physical appearance of the victims, especially um, mentioning like their age, their height, and their weight. This guy, <laughs> this guy must know um, a lot about the body structure of people and how much they weigh. Because I can't really look at somebody and be like, yeah, they would weigh, you know, 125 pounds soaking wet. Like, you know, but, um, he is very fascinated by black males' bodies, and he's able to tell you about their build, if they're slender, if they're well-built, very muscular. Um, he mentions, like, some of maybe some of the facial features that stand out, which kind of supports what uh, you and other listeners were saying about, like, um, the pornographic nature of this novel. Or, uh, yeah, I would just say it's a porno, but... Um, he, he talks about the eyes of his victims, the facial hair, the lips, and then they also go into the criminal history. Um, last week they mentioned, you know, New Orleans is close to the Gulf of Mexico, and they're talking about oil and how oil was black gold, and that was um, the primary income for this area, this part of the nation. But maybe that's like wordplay because there's there's a lot of black people, a lot of non-white people there. So maybe that um, New Orleans for Dominique was like a black gold because you have all these males around, and so it was just it was just easy access. Um, another thing that maybe some people touched on last week: um, the only way this hideous white man and white women, they can get sexual access to non-white people is through power. Um, one of the quotes from last week, it said, the money in Dominique's pocket would do the trick. And I think that's how a lot of white people lure non-white people into doing things that they would normally not do is through economic oppression. And by saying that money is power, you can get what you want. Because this white man, you know, um, the novel highlights a lot of his self-hatred, like his his white flesh. Um, he's pudgy. He's balding. He's overweight, unattractive. Nothing about him stands out or makes him 
look appealing to others, but his money does. And so because he's insecure about his appearance, about being gay, and about desiring a long-term gay relationship, but he's unable to achieve it, you know, in one way he wants to, he wants to be known for something, and that's why he's going around murdering all these non-white black males. But then again, um, the author continues to highlight that he's trying to blend in. He's trying to give the appearance of normalcy. Um, he's trying to not be seen, and yet he wants to be seen. And with that, I'll end my share. Fumbling with my mute button. Uh, I reckon before uh, you mute or, you know, go enjoy the rest of your South Carolina evening, you made the observation last time with us that with the white women who write these type of books, they will have a lot more sympathy. When we had Catherine Pellinero last book, oh man, Joey is sick. And if he had just got the mental help that he needed and he was not a racist, you know, was, he was just falling apart. He went to the hospital and oh, well, and his poor mother, oh, Teresa, <laughs> we had all that for, you know, months. Uh, are you seeing a difference? We got a white author this time around. Uh, you know, after, after listening to the replay, I don't know if I could stand on <laughs> my conviction about about um, white males versus white female authors um, not being as sympathetic. Maybe it's just white people in general, because uh, this 23andMe serial killer is what I call him. He's getting a lot of sympathy, like, oh, you know, he he was sexually abused by the priest and oh, you know, nobody really liked him. He he had trouble making friends and nobody wanted to, you know, nobody desired him and stuff. So maybe I can't stand on my conviction. <laughs> hey, love humility. Sometimes we have to reassess things. That is how we make improvements. We will have to see. Maybe we'll get to pe uh, check out another one, different white man handling one of these cases Dahmer or something else and see I do see a lot of sympathy for Dahmer though like oh my god they have whole uh, like dramatizations where they like portray him as a child and oh man nobody wanted to be Jeffrey's pal he didn't have any friends and they picked on him and he had glasses and man if he had just had a few buddies he wouldn't have carved and ate all those black and non-white people in Wisconsin, black and non-white males in Wisconsin. But yeah, anywho, we'll see. Much obliged to Miss C. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with commentary. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I was just... Uh, collecting my thoughts uh, from the uh, past reading and also last week uh, uh, with some thoughts. Uh, one is uh, uh, white people uh, write a lot of uh, mystery murder novels uh uh, there's plenty of programs on television about uh, murder. 
uh, of different types. Uh, and uh, it, it has to be something like a multi-million dollar industry on uh, on murder novels and that sort of thing. But with, And in addition with this type of uh, carnage, uh, it's based on racism, white supremacy directly. Uh, they basically make these books primarily for, for white people to enjoy because it gets, it gets two different things. It gets, uh, the, uh, maintenance of white supremacy and at the same time, a murder mystery, so to speak, uh, the damage that's been done to non-white people, especially non-white black people is we have more trust, unfortunately, for white people uh, than we have for another black person as far as uh, a situation to whereas this murderer uh, is able to get black people in a weak point to where they can be raped and murdered uh what 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 was his i got a question what what was his uh method of of uh killing what would take place what what would take place in a, in an order of things i need that for my my own my own thoughts when i you know as i listen to the readings what what was the the different the, the steps that he would take I know, I know. Eventually, with strangulation, but was did something take place before that? Uh, he would have his ruse of, you know, hey, let's meet up and have sex, or present them an the opportunity to have sex with a white woman for pay, or something like. Generally, generally it's going to be some sort of pay for some sort of anti-sex or sexual uh, encounter, uh, and then. He would get them in some sort of compromised position where he could have them tied uh, where they're bound or what have you. And then he would do the rape act. I think even sometimes it wasn't even that they had agreed uh, to the like they're thinking he, that they're going to have sex with this white woman or whatever. And then he ends up anally raping them while, once they're tied up. And then once he rapes them, he does the strangulation and killing them either with a cord, ligature, ligature, yeah, ligature of some sort or uh, with his hands. Yeah, and just by you explaining that, it, it it makes me think we wouldn't we wouldn't be that that much vulnerable with a another black person. Uh, all you know, I I I would imagine not to the level of success that that this white person and other white people who have done things of similar of similar uh, nature. Uh, since the uh, establishment of racism, white supremacy, uh, I think it plays a part of our, ment- our of our mental damage on how we are psychologically. That's the best word I can think about it. Psychologically vulnerable for white people harming us. You know, I, 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 uh, that's just that's just my thoughts on it. Or how easy a white person can can uh uh be able to harm us in that way and and also when it comes to quote unquote what is people calls called calls justice 
you know, as far as court and anything like that. Uh, the whole idea about the people that's a, that that victim, that non-white black victim knows they would be ridiculed. The dead person would be ridiculed about their personal past, uh, that sort of thing, which makes it difficult to be able to uh, indict and sentence and, and, and uh, force a, a particular sentence to be carried out on that white person. Uh, that would that would come up. Uh, I've heard callers talk about that as well as as uh, you talk about that. That 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 plays a part also, you know, in anything that has to do with uh, getting some kind of uh, court proceedings in the favor of the victim, uh, you know. And uh, so uh, I'm learning that in this book. You know, also just added on with the, uh, and I, I would I would figure that with the documentaries and the the true murder stories, especially ones like this, where it's a white person harming black people, it really thrills white people to be able to uh, read or view such uh, material. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, I'll look for other folks who dialed in, get our other folks who uh, wrote in as well. I forgot with uh, Miss C's commentary, she was saying about all of the really like specific detail that the author has about like weight and size and all that of the victims. They have stocky build and all this. He may have been another white man, white author like uh, Catherine Pellinero who got access to the police files so they would have all of that really specific detail like the person's exact body weight and build and because they're trying to you know see if there's a comparison between the victims and all that so he might have been able to look at all of that and then you know kind of glean from that data so that we get all the detail about the victims and that again might be a part of the pornographic delectable negro appeal of this genre to the, I would think it's got to be overwhelmingly white readers. Anywho, uh, let's see. Want make sure I. So it's ligature. Sorry, I think I mispronounced that ligature, some sort of rope, cord, whatever that he's using to strangle these. I think he even used a seatbelt in one instance. Incidentally, the documentary that I sound clipped last week, Bayou Blue. Ricky Wallace is there. I think that's the best one that I've seen at least so far. And there are, I think, at least three documentaries that have been done, some more recently. The Bayou Blue documentary is the best one that I've seen. That documentary is over a decade old. I just saw it. I don't know if anybody, I'm not, you know, reading is more important than watching television, but I'm just saying, like, that one does have a lot of details. You get to talk to a lot of the witnesses and family members and what have you about what was happening, you know, during all of this. And then they refute some of these lies that we were not homeless and blah, 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 and all this stuff. But I mean, dang, I didn't see the documentary. Never heard about it. We did all these programs on Katrina. They talk about Katrina. We're going to talk about Katrina eventually in this book. And I never heard anybody mention it or what have you. I mean, I just, that is amazing. And then again, all of the people that I'm aware of that have written books and even done films on this project. You guessed it. 
more and more time now who are the idiots about racism white supremacy and who are the experts matter of fact take that right there that was one of the keys to why we read this book Katrina for sure for sure this week 17 years to the day the levy breach all that is August 29 that's just a couple days ago but I mean this many black people now the system of white supremacy puts a lot of victims in these black people's position where they are vulnerable do anything just to make some money we heard that from a number of the victims this week thinking about can I make a few dollars can I and then they have the audacity to describe you as a hustler once they put you in that sort of predicament so that once you're vulnerable desperate as they say hey you you can't be as discerning that's even with the sex workers like hey if I had better options better quality of life I wouldn't do this but I don't I know this is unsafe work but race soldiers have left me few options so now I'm out here Creole Lady Marmalade hope they'll make a song about me Uh, let's see weave in my thoughts listeners as we go lots of people wrote in always appreciate the uh, notes reading more important than watching television uh, hopefully the book club motivate and encourage people to read you can read with us so you don't have to feel like you're by yourself and share and talk make it more enjoyable uh, engaging uh, so this person wrote in the first time that was from last week and they wanted to catch up so they wrote in today too <laughs> Right? we were getting ready to go live so their thoughts this time around one thing I've noticed in this book has been the glorification of the detectives as well-dressed and educated as this ostensibly uneducated slob goes amongst the black people unchecked and kills with impunity in my mind for both of these to be true is getting the benefit is getting at the benefits white people get in a system of white supremacy they get to fail upwards in white society white while others get to be invisible amongst us alert unalert black people Number two, the passage, some states don't require the coroner to be a medical doctor. Louisiana isn't one of them. By Louisiana state law, the coroner must be a medical doctor stuck out to me. I found this to be misleading in my accounting for a couple of reasons. I remember as a youth that New Orleans had a known corrupt coroner who I think tried to have a non-medical doctor elected to the coroner's office, possibly upon his retirement. The qualifications for this office says the following in quotes the candidate shall be a licensed physician unless no licensed physician in the parish will accept the office the coroner shall be a resident of the parish or a licensed physician who is not a resident of the parish but maintains a full-time medical practice at a principal medical office facility in the parish uh, and this is from a Louisiana government website you all can check it out I'll send you a link if you want it whole PDF I did a little more digging and remembered the police would prefer a sympathetic doctor as coroner to hide murders conducted by police but would take a non doctor resident to do the task just as much there's a lot of poorly accounted for deaths in New Orleans due to the collusion between the elected coroner and the New Orleans Police Department there was a TV documentary about this in the 90s or early 2000s possibly CBS or 60 Minutes uh, New Orleans Police Department is notoriously corrupt uh, police consent decree uh, and all of that just like Ferguson uh, many 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 years it's been horrendous one such case of the coroner the office routinely classified the deaths of those who had been in police custody as accidental or natural 
After 40 years in office, New Orleans coroner Frank Minyard is moving on. Uh, this is from uh, the Times-Picayune. Uh, and another civil rights leader, meanwhile, accused Orleans Parish coroner Frank Minyard of releasing an incomplete autopsy report and of trying to cover up a homicide to protect the police. They demand that he resign. Death of a cop killer prompts local federal investigation. <laughs> this is the AP report uh, from 1990 Associated Press. Uh, 90s 2000 uh, NOPD New Orleans Police Department had well documented drug trafficking going on within its ranks and I suspect they might have killed the Black Street dealer and their own police officer over a deal gone bad. I think this is the sort of context the author is omitting from the claimed mayhem he chooses to define the New Orleans street life indeed a lot of this even the reason that I know some of this is because of Katrina told you that was signature work before like a lot of that about the corruption in the police department is in shots on the bridge oh oh man that's I wrote about that we have to talk about that another yet uh, Robbie Green wrote that book uh, I wrote a review of it uh, it's talking about to shot and killed the whole black family but I mean man there's so much corruption in the New Orleans Police Department and it went on before during after the flood that is total context and that's right at the same time as these events so I don't know maybe he's saving all of the police corruption element to get in between uh, him last week when he was slobbering over the female detective at uh, New Orleans and then all the rest of it so maybe that's to come let's see I'll get to my notes and then get more email uh, chapter 6 uh, Kenneth Fitzgerald Randolph Jr. what a name Bayou Blue Male, Black Male. Says about two years earlier at age 18, Randolph had his first arrest for carnal knowledge of a juvenile. Randolph was accused of having consensual sex with a person whose age was, according to official documents, between 13 and 17, his next arrest for criminal damage of property. I, now, hey, I do not live in Louisiana. I don't know uh, the laws in the parishes and what have you and sexual intercourse with teenagers. Wow, that varies so much by jurisdiction. It varies so much that for me, the fact that the age is not specified. Wow. Uh, at least to my knowledge, it is a wildly different situation. If you are 18, male or female, and you are engaged in sexual intercourse with someone who is 17, in many jurisdictions, that's not a crime that's you know whatever as long as it's consensual you know I guess the parents can be upset about it but that is not a police issue okay if it's 18 and 16 same thing <laughs> many of the jurisdictions that I'm aware of that is not a crime parents can be upset about it whatever that is not a police issue now it would start to change at 15 that's where in many of the jurisdictions that I know alright now we're starting with statutory rape even though now I mean 18 and 15 these folks where I grew up they could have went to high school together I knew people that was their situation 18 15 they would have been you could have been in high school together senior freshman and I knew people uh, who senior freshman they dated nobody thought anything of it you move one year that person the senior would be 18 the freshman would now be a sophomore now I don't know. Is that supposed to be a criminal act? I'm not saying that was this, but I mean, that's what you would. You could not just tell me that this is on an official police. Like this is a government document where this guy is a criminal and the age range. He was 18 and the age range of the victim was 13 to 17. Like, whoa, <laughs> uh, 
criminal rap. I would think very differently about that if this person was 13 as opposed to 17. Like, you would have to give me a lot more detail than that. 13 is a totally different... Some places for 13, now you might be in prison for a long, long time, as well you should be. That's getting with uh, the loving Ainge Rage. Uh, let's see. They continue, so this is still with uh, Mr. Randolph. Uh... The next one, they say the age is not referred to specifically in the documents to maintain the teen's anonymity. This is another one where I said, man, I don't, he was arrested for having sex with someone underage. Is this a 16 year old? Is it a 17 year old? 15 year old? They don't give the details. Next time it comes around, five months later, had sex with a third child. This time he was handed a felony conviction and yet Randolph was given a gift, a very life sentence three years in prison, sin suspended with 18 months of supervised probation back on the street. Randolph, the pedophile met Dominique, the serial killer. I'm like, wow. I mean, now if these are all 13 year olds, cause they don't give the, the age. Okay. That would fit. No problem. That would be accurate. These folks are 17, even 16. I would be thinking, is this an act of racism, white supremacy? You going back with the old raping Negro male, uh, especially if this was consensual, because they didn't say that. It's, this is all just about the age thing. They didn't say this was like someone called and he attacked me or whatever. I would need more detail. They have to give me a lot more detail, especially if this white man had the police file. Like, give us a couple more paragraphs here before you want to go, you know, bashing victims and calling them pedophile. I don't even know if he's used that sort of language to describe uh, Ronald Dominic. And it was certainly qualified. He killed a 16-year-old, killed and raped a black 16-year-old. We talked about that last week and how appalling that is. Like, dang, they don't even talk about that. How do you, you rape and kill a black 16-year-old and nobody's up enraged about that? Next, uh, let's see. They said, uh, cane fields are common to southern Louisiana where the warm climate nurtures the fibrous plant, it is one of the state's best crops. Fields stretch for miles. Finding them is no surprise, but discovering the naked body of a young black man lying in one is definitely uncommon. I just, I paused there because in the Bayou Blue documentary that I already mentioned, they speak with, I forgot the victim's family. They speak with a lot of victims, family. So, you know, it was one, two dozen is one of these two dozen they speak with and they said that their family member black male had not come home and so they're waiting 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 after a while they go out and they start looking for him and they started looking in the cane fields for a body now i thought wow this is like within the first 24 hours they said they were out in the cane fields looking for a body now i was like wow is it that common to find bodies in the cane fields in louisiana my jeez and then the body was found in the cane field I mean whew, not paradise for black people in Louisiana at any time uh, let's see and then we get into all this you know pornographic description of how the body was found and the buttocks are exposed and all this graphic detail same thing that we had last week I, I do not I'm no fan of this genre I do not I've never read any of these books until we started reading them for the cow's book club i said uh i read uh what is it called? i think it's called murder in milwaukee 
that's it. Robert Dvorak's book. I think that might have been probably one of the first true crime, so-called serial killer type books that I ever read in my life. Uh, and it took a while even for me to talk to Mr. Fuller about that and say, oh, wow, we should maybe read a book and talk about that. But I'm just, that is not something that I would get excited about. Ooh, let's hear all the details and how many times the person got stabbed. And, ooh, where was the body found, Dad? And oh, how much semen did they have in their rectum? And uh, are you serious? And then this just goes on and on and on for years. We get to hear about how many people found the body. And they get to make their little jokes about this along the way. Even you can pause. This is all tied in. Kobe Bryant Day. Last week, they were sharing the photos from the crash scene. They said this is a widespread problem police go and they take photographs from the crime same thing I just said ooh he's got his buttocks exposed ooh put this on my website ooh ooh true crime ooh detective Schrader ooh visit my website www.truecrime.com and all this nonsense I can't even say it's nonsense because that's really that's the same thing with the lynching photograph that is white culture all of it the whole true crime genre you can just see the continuity same way you see the continuity with all of the rape and sexual debauchery in New Orleans all of it the killing and then glorifying the killing whether it's the lynching postcards Kobe Bryant's pictures whatever true crime go read about one of the thousands of books on Jeffrey Dahmer let's see let's see at the end of chapter 6 they talk about the killing of Mr. Randolph uh, and he says Dominic's kill total was now up to 11 he walked up to a house in Homa and rang the doorbell you called for a pizza he said brightly to the man who answered the door one, I said this last week, all this, it just, it makes it sound like we're playing, you know, baseball. That's what Joey said, we're playing baseball. Like, ooh, he's got 11. How many is going to get? Oh, it's up to 13. Like, what in the world? That, again, that's white culture. American sniper, Chris Kyle, he was doing the same thing. Killing dark people all the way over in, uh, what is it, Middle East, as they call it? Bragging about it. Making a game out of it. How many you get? I'm, I'm got my total. I'm up to 18 today. Make a game. Make it fit. That's the racist jokes. It's supposed to be fun. Killing non-white people. Apparently, especially black males. Darker they are, the more fun it is. But within that same passage, kill total now to 11. Walked up to a house in Homa and rang the doorbell. You called for a pizza. All delectable Negro. I'm bragging about my body count as I bring you your pizza and... Now, I mean, really, I've talked all that about, hey, let's minimize the eating out. And I know some of Nick over the road is with us. Sometimes you can't sit here and be at home and make some seven course gourmet vegan meal. And I know, I know. But man, when I'm not anally raping and killing black males, I do a little Uber Eats. You don't think they know when they got a black delivery? Like, ooh. I'm going to a nigger's house. Well, I, I might not be able to anally rape and kill this one. But. <laughs> Let's see. Chapter 7. 
Uh, this is Big Julius and Noka Jones. Uh, 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 uh. I'd say for sure, uh, Ronald Dominic got has got more sympathy in this text so far than Big Julius. Like for sure, for sure. I don't know that Big Julius did anything. Um, Dominic is a convict. Let's see. Says Dominic got down. Exactly. Uh, the last Dominic had the right idea. Get rid of the body. Last thing he needed was for a cop to stop him with a body in the back. He had left Homa for Lafouche, some miles farther on. He was almost in his home parish. He got on Interstate 310 towards New Orleans and drove down the now familiar ramp, passing the black and white Jefferson County Sheriff's Office squad car parked at the foot, waiting for speeders inside the Sonoma. Dominique's groin was throbbing. The thrill of having the body in the back seat and driving past the cop who was unaware of what had happened was just tremendous if he could have slowed down to make the thrill last longer he would have but to do that would be to invite attention he kept going made a left and disappeared from view retired firefighter used the word thrilling this is it right here the thrill I can go out and kill Nicholas. in fact that was one of the sound clips where I said I was so upset man we gotta sit here and waste time fondling fathers again I was going to play the sound clip one of the newer documentaries they talk about this exact scene this is another one by the way where I said, are you serious that's when I'm going to get excited like ooh I can't wait go home and read the part about how the white man gets an erection killing nigger males in New Orleans like ooh that's my summer read at the beach right are you serious homoeroticism of white culture is what we just talking about cocksuckers on Monday but all of that is in one of the documentaries and he says I was driving down Jeff, that happened to Jeffrey Dahmer he was driving next to this it's the exact same thing we talked about that with Jeffrey Dahmer he had a body in the car and he got stopped by the police he had a body in the trunk and this Jeffrey Dahmer had a record too he got stopped though and the cop didn't even oh yeah good white man all right, all right have fun don't run over any niggers if you do you know hit them twice for me <laughs> all right and he got to go on and keep killing got up to almost 20 people mostly non-white males but he said in the documentary I felt like God nigger male in the trunk of my car I don't even know his name doesn't even matter dead nigger now he's not gonna make that appointment (laughs) thrilling this is how I'm somebody in fact we talked about this with Dr. Welsing I think this was or I know this was 2015 springtime Uh, we talked about this exactly how white people get a sense of power we talked about this exactly we talked about the psychology white people getting some sorts of a rock because we've heard this over and over and over and over and I mean exactly what he just said wrote Uh, they had the white police officer who said I had a wet dream thinking that a black male was out stealing fried chicken and I got to blow his brains out what is that who thinks like that? Apparently, Dominic, a lot of white people get not just enjoyment is fun. I get a sense of sexual arousal, sexual stimulation, killing black people. That's the chopping the penis off and saving it, all of it. Joey 22, I said that as well. Anywho, 
we will get to uh, picking up chapter 9, I think. Unless I'm confused. I think it's chapter 9. I'll get to the rest of my notes. I didn't even read all the emails. Didn't even read all the emails. Uh, If you have other comments, write them down. Uh, We should have ample time once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, This is Fred Rosen's the Bayou Strangler. Uh, we will pick up audio segment number two. Man, oh man! Again, and be thinking. I wasn't just playing the Patty Labelle just for the yeah. This is the history of New Orleans raping. But again, this guy, when I'm not anally raping and killing black males, I'm dressing up like Patty Labelle. Audio segment number two. Chapter 9 The Meter Reader Terrebonne Parish, 2006 Things changed for Dominique in January 2004. That's when Caro Produce laid him off. Being the diligent worker he was, he soon got a job with Gulf Coast Maintenance in Homa, staying six months until he quit. Then Dominique got the perfect job for someone keeping a low profile. He became a meter reader. Let's face it, that's the perfect job for a serial killer. Dominique was employed by a meter reading company through the end of 2004. During that entire time, in fact since the first of the year, Dominique didn't murder anyone. Dominique was smarter than most serial killers having remained undetected for so long and with so many victims. He had found that killing in Homa was very different from killing in New Orleans and its suburbs. While New Orleans had a series of highways and streets around each dump site, which always made for a swift getaway, Homa was a rural town. It can be risky to dump a body in a rural town. If he didn't know the roads, he could easily get lost. But in Homa, he was getting to know the roads and learning which ones to take to find a little privacy. He wouldn't, however, go the extra mile into the bayou. Supposing once he'd finished dumping somebody, he got lost on the way back. That would make him a target for the police. That's the last thing he wanted. So far, no one he knew had been questioned about the murders. While he obviously never spoke about it, Dominique must have known he was being hunted. After all, he had deliberately dropped the bodies in ways that would attract the cops. Every day on the way to work, he passed by the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office. He knew what he was doing. He never once attracted the attention of them or the cops in any of the other parishes. If he didn't know for sure that the police were on his tail, he sure acted like he did. Dominique used the time on the clock to plan future killings. If it were later proven in court that he was planning first-degree murder, he'd have a quick march to the death chamber, regardless of who was on the Supreme Court. His meter-reading job took Dominique all through Terrebonne Parish, into the outlying areas. Dominique found himself on more than one occasion driving his truck up a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, just to read someone's meter. He became familiar with the roads, and he began to make mental notes for future body dump sites. One place stood out. It was on a backwater road, a Shriner's meeting hall. 
Behind it, near the local airport, was a dense patch of woods and a field. During the years that Dominique abstained from killing, police made no progress in tracking him down. They knew there were 13 murders in five different parishes, all linked by M.O. It was the same in every case. Strangulation. Cops referred to them as soft kills. There were no motives that could be associated with any of the victim's families, friends, or even enemies. That, of course, is consistent with serial killing. Nor did police have a viable suspect. Thornton, Fryman, and every other detective working the case had sat down in front of computer screens in their offices. Thornton himself had been through every database he had access to, of men charged and or convicted of sex offenses, and still had no viable leads. It was more than frustrating. It was dispiriting. Sometimes he found his broad shoulders sagging under the weight. They might have sagged further had he known that Dominique was, indeed, in another parish's database. Having been charged with male-on-male -male rape many years before, the serial killer's identity was waiting to be discovered by a keen-eyed detective. Absent that, police could always hold out the hope that someplace down the line, they might match some left-behind DNA to their not-yet suspect. Dennis Thornton knew it was necessary to establish a special task force. With a dedicated group of officers pooling their information, resources, and intelligence, they'd have a better shot at identifying and catching the killer. One night, Dominique found himself driving out in the parish with a tropical storm raging all around him. This was Tropical Storm Matthew, which ravaged southern Louisiana in October 2004. Eighty-mile-an-hour winds lashed at roofs as rain pounded down in sheets for a full day. At times, the rain was horizontal because of the intense winds, and the temperature fell as the storm reached its peak. It finally ended during the night. The next morning dawned sunny and bright. Banker Jeff Murrow was the first to notice the body lying near a pond in the Des Almonds area. Murrow drove home. He knocked on the door of his neighbor, Don Jerome. By pure coincidence, Jerome was a criminalist with the sheriff's office of St. Charles Parish. He responded immediately to his neighbor's summons. Racing to his car, Jerome drove toward the location that Murrow had described. He got there in twenty minutes. At 11.40 a.m., Jerome located the body of a black male, as he later detailed in his report. Jerome notified dispatch and went back to his observations. The victim lay on his right side, knees slightly bent, no visible signs of trauma, and rigor mortis not yet present. Jerome went through the pockets of the victim's blue sweatpants and black polo-style short-sleeved shirt. The criminalist could find no identification, no socks, no shoes, and he was very wet. The killer had dumped the body while the tropical storm still raged. It was a desperate thing to do, going out in weather like that, when a flying tree could kill you instantly. 
But if you happen to have killed somebody, and you have already transferred them to your car, dumping the body is of the highest priority, lest you be discovered. Dominique did not dally after a kill. He immediately disposed of his victims. Jerome searched the area for trace evidence and found nothing. A few minutes later, he took digital photographs of the deceased and the surrounding recovery area. Then detectives arrived on the scene. A rough sketch and measurements were taken of the dump site. Shortly after, the coroner's investigator arrived to officially pronounce the victim dead and have the body removed to the morgue. The autopsy took place the following day, with Jerome in attendance at the post-mortem examination of an unidentified black male subject, John Doe. Jerome took digital photographs of the victim prior to and during the autopsy, conducted by Dr. Frank Johnson. Johnson eventually concluded that whoever had killed the victim had used a lot of force. Johnson's official autopsy report says that he found blunt force trauma to the right shoulder and soft tissue and intramuscular hemorrhages of the back and buttocks. For some reason, that was not found to be unusual. Instead, Johnson wrote, Signs of violence are not apparent at the scene. Cause of death, as determined at autopsy and toxicological analysis, is considered to be drug overdose, cocaine. Manner of death is considered to be accidental. It probably wasn't the first time, or the last, that a victim of a serial killer was listed first as an accidental death in this case, from a cocaine overdose. That did, of course, contradict the autopsy finding, where Johnson found lineal abrasions of each buttock, vascular hemorrhage within the subcutaneous fatty tissues. Could the victim have been raped? The coroner didn't comment. As for method of death, a neck dissection noted overlying the strap muscles of the anterior right neck is red-current, jelly-clotted blood. That would be consistent with strangulation. After the autopsy was completed, the victim's prints were gathered and entered in the AFIS. A short time later, the prints came back identifying the victim as Larry Matthews of Thibodeau. They also got his last known address. Turned out, detectives from the Thibodeau Police Department were already familiar with Larry Matthews. A known drug dealer and user, he was described in police reports as somewhat homeless. How exactly someone could be somewhat homeless was not quite explained. The Thibodeau cops had met Matthews's brother, Martin, during a prior investigation of Matthews's drug dealing. When they went to his residence to interview him, Martin said that he had last seen his brother three or four days ago and was worried about him. He remembered seeing him walking south on Charles Street and then disappearing in the distance. The cops told Martin that his brother had been found dead. They had positively identified Larry Matthews through his fingerprints. Do you know anyone who would want your brother dead? A detective asked. I can't think of anyone my brother hung around with or anyone wanting to do him harm. Four days later, well past the 72-hour window of opportunity in a murder investigation, 
most successful cases are solved in that time frame. The phone rang at the Thibodeau Parish Sheriff's Office. This is Simon Fryman of the Homa Police Department, said the voice on the line. Fryman told Thibodeau police that they had a white male at their office, Jim Jarman, claiming that the police were looking for him. It was in reference to Larry Matthews's murder. Jarman said that he was visiting a friend in Thibodeau when Larry Matthews showed up. He lent his wife's vehicle to Matthews, and he has not got it back yet, Fryman continued. Jarman admitted that he and Matthews started talking about drugs, crack cocaine, and women. Matthews told him that if he would let him use his wife's car, he'd bring back some girls and some crack for a party. The agreeable Jarman gave Matthews the keys. Matthews drove off and never came back. Jarman was angry and decided to do something about it. He went over to where Matthews was living with his brother, Martin, who told him that Matthews had been found dead. That's when Jarman filed the report with the police about his wife's missing car. As for Matthews, all Jarman remembered was that the last time he saw Matthews, he was wearing blue jeans, a red shirt, a baseball cap, and white tennis shoes. He was alone. The details seemed mundane, but they weren't. It was a way to backtrack Matthews's movements leading up to his killing. After the phone call, police canvassed the street Jarman had spoken of and wound up speaking to Calvin Early. Early said that on Friday, October 8, an unknown white male, two unknown white females, and Larry Matthews showed up at his residence in a silver car. Early's description of the white male fit Jarman. They all entered my house, Early said, and they drank and played cards for a while. After a while, Larry left walking away. I don't know where. Larry never returned. A day later, police spotted the stolen car and pulled it over. As soon as they did, the car's doors sprung open and four men ran from it with the surprised police at the scene unable to catch up with them. The car was then processed for evidence, at which time a few latent fingerprints were recovered. When Jarman went to the impound lot to claim his car, the St. Charles cops decided to go there and chat with him again. Jarman made the same statement that he had previously given to the Homa police. Again, he was hesitant, this time admitting he was nervous because he was on parole for drug charges and didn't want to get in trouble with his probation officer. Regardless, police now knew that sometime after Larry Matthews drove away from Jarman's place in his wife's car, he fell into the clutches of a cocaine overdose. He had officially succumbed to a white powder, not a guy with strong hands. Due to this information, I will close this case taking no further actions at this time, closing it as an accidental overdose, Jerome wrote in his report. Wendy Guidry was just trying to make a living like everyone else. She and her husband, Dirk, owned Gator Storage, a hundred-unit storage rental facility in town. The Gator had no visible security, no electronic gate or security codes like some storage facilities had. Perhaps the couple figured that, being in a rural area, 
there was very little chance of theft. All of the units were sealed with dull blue shuttered doors that stood out starkly against the cane field surrounding the facility. Gidry had received a report from one of her employees about a strange smell coming from one of the units. Once she arrived, she too smelled the stink immediately, noticing a dark fluid seeping out from under the door of an unlocked unit. Unlike all the other units, which were padlocked, this one was secured by a simple twist tie. Gidry removed the tie and lifted the door warily. The stench was overwhelming, and the dark fluid was now readily visible in the light of day as blood. That's when her gaze centered on the body. The man was laid on his back, naked, and looked middle-aged, maybe in his fifties. Gidry panicked and bolted from the unit. When she got back to her office, she dialed 911. Within minutes, Homa police arrived on the scene, followed by the Terrebonne Parish detectives, who had also been summoned. Detective Simon Fryman of the Homa Police Department and Detective Don Bergeron of the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office were led to the unit, where they found the body in an advanced state of decomposition. As the criminalists began their work, Bergeron and Fryman peppered Wendy Gidry with questions. How had she initially come to make the call? Why had she gone to that specific storage bin? Then they asked Gidry to give them a complete list of all the rental units, including tenants' names, addresses, and phone numbers. The police then called every single name on that list, more than 50 people, to find out if anyone had noticed anything out of the ordinary. No such luck. No one had seen, heard, or smelled anything unusual. Once again, it was as if the killer had drifted into thin air. The next day, the Homa Daily Courier carried a front-page article about the body's discovery. The police had decided there was no point in embargoing the story. The article went so far as to link this fresh kill with the others that had preceded it, speculating that a serial killer targeting men was on the loose. However, the Associated Press did not pick up the story so word of the new murder failed to be disseminated beyond the southern Louisiana area. Pending identification of the decomposed John Doe, the coroner found no obvious signs of trauma to the body. The decomp was too far along to tell much else. The victim was kept refrigerated in the morgue until he could be positively identified. The next morning, Bergeron returned to speak with Wendy Guidry, Bergeron had a hunch that further questioning might elicit new information. Many times, witnesses remember more when they repeat their statements. Gidry's recollection was that one of her employees, Rod Billings, was someplace at the back of the property on Saturday, two days prior to the discovery of the body. Bergeron found Billings in the office. He explained that he had been in back sweeping out the cobwebs from the climate-controlled units. He didn't see anything out of the ordinary. The next day, a local merchant named Francis Barber came into the Homa Police Department to report that his childhood friend, Michael Barnett, was missing. Barber had last seen Barnett on Friday evening as he was leaving 317 Ruth Street. He was on his bicycle. 
Barnett told Barber that he was going to meet a girl at a fire station. Detectives showed Barber a picture a sketch artist had drawn the previous day. The decomposition of the body was far along, but not so far as to prevent at least partial identification. The artist had noticed a unique dragon tattoo on the decedent's arm and drew it in detail. They showed the tattoo sketch to Barber. Yup, said Barber, nodding. I am positively sure Michael had that tattoo. I remember seeing it many times. So now they had an identification. While Detective Fryman continued to take Barber's statement, Bergeron went to the fire station. Barber had said that Barnett was on his way to a fire station to meet a girl. Unfortunately, the fireman had seen nothing out of the ordinary. It seemed Barnett had not made it to the firehouse. The killer was murdering mostly black men, but he had also started killing Caucasians. The detectives pooled information, and someone said that Michael Barnett had a brother named David, who was possibly living on Miranda Court. They got back in their cars and drove to Miranda Court, a run-down neighborhood of detached homes. No one was at home at the brother's address. They left a message on the door for the brother to call and went back to headquarters. One hour later, Barnett's friend Jack Gillings called. Just about the same time, David Barnett got the message and called too. The detectives asked the men to come down to be interviewed. They both had the same story. They said they'd last seen Barnett approximately four weeks ago. They had gotten into an argument in which they accused Barnett of stealing power tools from Gillings. Both men had on-again, off-again friendships with Barnett. However, he's still family, David Barnett said. No longer angry with Michael Barnett, they were very concerned he had been reported missing. Both men claimed that Michael's new roommate, Dorian Bates, may have been involved. Detectives made a note of Bates's name and explained that Barnett had not been positively identified yet. They were trying to use fingerprints and dental records to aid in positive identification. The tattoo wasn't enough. After he got home later in the day, David Barnett remembered a few things. He called and spoke with Bergeron, filling her in on his brother's background. Michael was born in Mississippi, and his biological mother gave him to Chad and Patricia Barnett for adoption. David, 35 years old, was their biological son. Michael was raised as a brother to me, David added. Bergeron told Barnett of the advanced state of decomposition, which made positive identification difficult. Anxious to help catch his brother's killer, he volunteered to help police check Mississippi for possible dental records. Then Bergeron found a judge who agreed to sign a search warrant. Armed with the warrant, she drove over to the Ruth Street apartment where Barnett lived and went through the place. She was trying to locate items that might have belonged to Michael Barnett. The hope was that they could take prints off something he'd touched and match them to the ones they had gotten off the body. Several pieces of mail and a few CDs were collected and taken to the department for processing. The next day, Bergeron was looking through Barnett's correspondence 
when she discovered that he had been housed as a child in the Baptist Children's Village in Jackson, Mississippi. Maybe he'd seen a dentist while there. She faxed a request to see Barnett's dental records. Soon the fax machine rang, and the pages started coming through. Barnett had seen a Dr. Don Murphy on February 8, 1999, when Barnett was a teenager. Calling Murphy's office, Bergeron learned that Murphy had retired, and a Dr. Mike Madison had taken over the business. Madison's office still had the old records. Soon she received hard copies of the dental records in the mail. They were turned over to the coroner's office for comparison to the victim. The coroner confirmed that the deceased was definitely Michael Barnett. With a positive identification, Bergeron shared the news with David Barnett and Jack Gillings. Michael was dead. Gillings and Barnett urged Bergeron to question Michael's roommate, whom they continued to suspect. Don Bergeron had been coming through the ranks. Major Vernon Bourgeois, who was the overall field commander of the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office, had been watching her for some time. She's a real firecracker, he'd exclaimed to anyone who asked. The ambivalent high school graduate, who wasn't sure what she was going to do with her life, had grown into a no-nonsense, dedicated, intelligent, and, most importantly, empathetic detective. Empathy was the one thing any good detective needed. The ability to put yourself in the suspect's shoes and relate to what he's feeling when being questioned. Bergeron just seemed to be a natural at getting confessions, or, as police like to call them, statements. Her personal life had also gone through important changes. She'd married, given birth to a daughter, divorced the child's father, then gotten remarried, this time to a detective like herself. In spite of the domestic obligations of being a wife and mother, Bergeron remained dedicated to her job. She was known to beg off social functions with her daughter because Mommy had to serve a warrant. It was this combination of being a sympathetic parent and a committed cop that made her especially good on the job. Going through all the names on the list Guidry had given them of people who had rented storage units, Bergeron came up with a blank. There was no connection with anyone on the list to Barnett. Bergeron, though, was well aware of the Southern Louisiana serial killer. She wondered if Barnett could have been one of his victims. All righty. We will resume there next week now. Unless I'm in error, so many bodies here. Uh, this is our first white victim, Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows. Do we notice any difference in the portrayal of white victims? Or, you know, is it the same, same pattern, you think? Let us know. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564943 pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh this year email until justice at gmail dot com again until justice at gmail dot com 
Uh, so totally different person wrote in uh, investor uh, Gus I included my commentary that we didn't get to last week I hope it didn't because I forgot my bad uh, good evening Gus I had a few observations from tonight's reading uh, victim Detrell Woods was described as a real piece of work which was very insensitive and tacky his mother Margaret Woods sensed something was wrong when she saw her son with three white people one being his white friend Gary and tried to interfere to keep the victim from leaving unfortunately she was unsuccessful the concept white friends should be evaluated eliminated by all non-white people the treatment described from a victim Detrell Woods family made me think of the phrase throw away children hmm. Larry Matthews is described as a known drug dealer and user this is again focusing on the negative traits of the victim instead of the positive qualities Larry Matthews had white friends and was found dead from a cocaine overdose after a night out with his white friends Detrell Woods was as previously mentioned also had white friends maybe victims should bookmark these incidents just to show how frequently having white friends can turn deadly James Bird Jr. I think those were his friends too a dead white person gets found in a storage unit and it makes the front page of the local paper after years of black males being killed without seemingly a mention the, cons the constant description of black males who are seemingly very desperate, there, that word again, shows exactly how the system of white supremacy can de deprive black males of so much that they fall victim to these types of murders, schemes, or even partaking in anti-sex for money. The witness said that person in the photo was vivid because he was acting like a nigger. I wish I could have her expound on that he was carrying himself like a nigger is too vague uh, let's wait a minute I think we might not have got that far we might not have got that far we'll have to hold a little bit here this might go a little bit further than we went this week pause right there we'll get back to the rest of the, let's see if I can knock down oh we can knock them all down bang let's see uh, different person uh, wrote in Let's see. Greetings, Gus T. I used to question why people watched crime shows, movies, or read this type of material. Me too. I remember asking a non-white male this several years ago. He said, to know what white folks are up to. Hmm. Sounds like that person way ahead of the curve, at least in that matter. This book and others like it are instruction manuals, and it's our job to study and counter potential attacks. VGQ. Observations from this book. Number one. Criminals who sexually abuse children are given such light sentences. Business as usual on this prison planet, for sure. Number two, when the usual suspects don't know your name and your deceased black male, you are not allowed humanity. Seems like even if you do get a name, you still are not a human. <laughs> Number three, the victim's lack of suspicion about the pudgy white guy was fatal. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four, wish Detrell's mother was more successful with keeping her son from danger. <sighs> I can only do so much, she tried. Number five, gotta pay taxes to get help, 
gotta pay taxes to get any help from law <laughs> even if you do pay taxes hey Ovaldi alright knock down all of the emails just have to get the other half of our investor and bang until justice at gmail.com if you have uh, commentary now uh, all of the folks who dialed in on the phone line should be with us uh, let's see Nick over the road Miss C retired firefighter uh, caller at 226229 oh yeah caller uh, Pacific Northwest uh, and then other folks do not wait till the last minute if you know you have commentary and you want to participate get a hand up right now star 61 number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate we are at the halfway point of the book Can I be heard? Our caller in the Pacific Northwest. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, um, the part where um, the guy goes by the white man's house and he gives him his, his wife's car keys, that part was a borderline shocking to me. It said, Jarman admitted that he and Matthew started talking about drugs, crack cocaine, and women. Matthews told him that if he would let him use his wife's car, he'd bring back some girls and some crack for a party. The agreeable Jarman gave Matthews the keys. Matthews drove off and never came back. Now, this white man is, is obviously, he smokes crack. And the author describes him as agreeable. I just, um, the way, the difference in the way they do the white people and the black people in this story is just amazing. And then to go to the police station and tell them that story and you're on probation, I, I don't even know what to say about that. And the other white man, um, you know, I think he smokes crack, too, but the author didn't say it, but he just hinted at it saying um, he was stealing power tools and stuff like that. Everybody else, the black people, hey, he had three crack rocks in his in his pocket. You know, he did this, he did that. The white man, hey, he stole some power tools, and, you know, you have to just use your own deductive reasoning. Um, that's all I have for now. So you think if if if, if Matthew was a black person and he says hey man I got this here idea let me uh let me get your wife's car let me get a few of these crack rocks bring back some hoes it's gonna be cracking <laughs> like yeah how do you think you would have described it if Matthew had been a black person <laughs> I don't know but the fact that he went to the police station and just told that entire story to them like it wasn't I mean, he's admitting to those are criminal acts. You know, smoking crack, I think, is a crime. Uh, you know, who goes to the police station and admits to committing crimes? 
he was nervous about it. He said they said Jarman, you know, didn't want to take like he said, you know, he's got a, a record. He's on probation and all. So, he, yeah, th- these are criminal acts. This could be considered a violation. So, yeah, they said he was nervous about sharing all this this information. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know. He didn't go to jail. I don't think. I don't think you should. I mean, this is a murder investigation. Like, yeah, I mean, the police would say, like, hey, man, give up the good, like, obstruction of justice. We're not going to mess around, like, with Joey here and have old Kevin Paulson and folks messing around and not, like, <laughs> let's, come on, man. Like, what's, this is not about your crack habit, man, just in the substance abuse. Where's the empathy? I don't know. It's not that I don't have empathy. I think I would have just been nervous about going to the police station and admitting all of that. That is all. For sure, for sure. Especially if you are a non-white person, black male, like, oh, man. (laughs) Nervous. And this is a corrupt police station. Like, they might end, I might end up being charged for this crime myself. Like, oh, Lord. (laughs) Woo. Uh, Let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, uh, especially if I guess you have comments now that we've got some. I think these are the first white victims. Isn't that right? I don't think we had any white people, white victims last week. If other folks have comments on the portrayal of the white victims in this, if you think it's been the same or if you notice any differences, that'd be good, too. Other folks with a hand up, proceed. Oh, hi. Um, I was just thinking about how the author describes, you know, um, the 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 female um detective how the author was humanizing her oh she she has a family and and she 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 put empathy and i'm thinking that empathy wouldn't be a trait that a good de- that a good detective would have would be able to to get someone to incriminate themselves by using deceit and and deception so i don't know this the author spends a lot of time humanizing all of the white characters and deeming demonizing all of the black characters i mean of course this is a system of racism white supremacy so that should be expected so i was just thinking about that and and also they also talking about the black victims as if they're just playthings, just toys to be played with, something you take take from the garbage and you throw out. So that's another thing that I've noticed. Do you see a difference in how uh, Michael Barnett was described in the book? This is a white victim that we got right at the end here. Um, well, the only thing about with the white victim, it's, it doesn't have that, that delectable Negro thing in about talking about the black body parts, you know, none of that descriptions as if someone is edible, as if, you know, nothing about the white person as, as if there's, they, there's some, they are someone to be consumed, but with the black victims, they're, they're, they're like edible they could be consumed. They're dark meat. We got to get our dark meat and, and that and that kind of a thing. That's a good point, man. I hadn't shared any comments, but that's a good point. I don't think we got the detailed. He weighed 150 pounds and stocky 
build broad shoulders and buttocks was explained. We did not get that sort of breakdown with uh, Mr. Barnett here. Okay, right on. That's the type of thing I was looking for, like, you know, as we roll through the book. Much obliged, sir. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, proceed. That's it, folks. So the second portion, straight or? Um, I have some things, but I just didn't want to talk again if someone else had to talk. Wanted to talk. Well, they're messing around. So if you come to that uh, guy, I think his name was Michael Barnett. Mm-hmm. He, uh, his mother just gave him away when he was a child, and. The author didn't really say anything bad about that. You know, he was in some kind of children's home. I think it was, um, hmm, I think it was called the, the Baptist Children's Village. But anyway, you know, no um, remarks about what a terrible person um, that lady was. But Daytrail, you know, he went to the juvenile facility and his mom didn't bring him any underwear and he was slow and she didn't care about him and all sorts of things. And, you know, uh, she kept Daytrail, didn't give him away. Uh, I don't know. It seems like she cared about him. So there, there's a difference right there. That is a good one. I will take that. Um, did they, when he was talking about Daytrail, did he talk trash about the family not looking up for them? Or did you, is that different? Did he, yes. They okay. Yeah, they said he was in some sort of center. They called the, I don't remember what they called the white lady, but it was like some sort of probation officer, but for younger people. And um, she uh, said that uh, Daytrail's mom didn't care about him. She never called up there to see how he was doing. She wouldn't bring him underwear. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, they talked to, yes, they did. That's a lot more detail. That's a lot more detail. All right, I'll take that one too. Good point. Good point. Good point. Uh, anybody else? Commentary? Second portion? Maybe folks are satisfied. I'll make sure I get my notes in. And if we have time, check again. If not, do it up next week again. We are at the halfway point. This book is not, you know, that big. Um, and there are no footnotes. That is something that bothered me. Uh, I went to the library to get, you know, some of the few articles that have been written about this case or were written at the time these events were unfolding. And it was way more difficult because there's no reference section uh, in this book. So you can't, you know, like at least with Catherine Pellinero, she didn't have footnotes, but she did have a reference section where it had like the other books that she used and all the newspaper articles right there, dates and times, the way a professional does. Like it's nothing. Uh, here so you can't go and you know check any sources nothing oh I hate books like that and no footnotes uh, from chapter 8 uh, Grandpa Sucks Detrell Woods uh, who just mentioned uh, so we got the real piece of work everybody talked about that I'm in total agreement um, they describe the ramshackled house of Margaret Woods, his mother, like the descriptions of where these black people live. I feel like the lack of empathy 
plays out in total uh like the way that detective bergeron like she's a disney like i said she's a disney world remember that last week at the beginning of the book and i was like man what the hell like how do we start in disney world in florida no less like we're not even in the same state much less planet and all this i'm being dumped in southern louisiana with like we are as far from disney world as you could possibly be why are we starting at then and then all the sexualization of her at disney world no less then to come back and they're in a ramshackled hut and we're gonna talk trash about them hustlers like the whole way through the book i feel like it's just every time that the black people are mentioned it's mocking their death oh i guess he won't make that appointment <laughs> oh he was a real piece of work that's what or they just lived in some ramshackled hunting oh diving oh, oh just poverty like or the delectableness the anonymity we don't even have a name just a random nigger body who's this who is this who cares and it doesn't even matter because he's dead now it just extends all the way through the book in my opinion uh, let's see. I'd even say the lack of references like this is to me that signals the more that this is not that serious. This is like entertainment. You're not reading this seriously enough to verify this or I want to go explore further. This is just, you know, <laughs> hear about the Negras and how he carved them up and anally abused them and all the rest of it. Uh, let's see dump site even that link now I don't know I have to I'm gonna have to go back and pay attention to that language to see if that's like in the official language when they you know if that's how they talk about these cases and serial killers like you know that's what they use the language is a dump site this is where they're gonna take the body boom bury it whatever they're gonna do and then move on evidence get rid of it all that or if that's just in line with the worthlessness of these bodies, we're going to use language that ties them to trash. Something not a value. A person, not even a person. Something not a value. Um, let's see. And they said uh, at the end of that chapter, don't break your neck. No one who will be missed. Now, chapter nine the meter reader this all the different even that this guy is a no count dropout slob white guy some of these <laughs> black people can't get a job like I said last week you got folks here that were like 16 20 they couldn't have got community college I'm saying you got to send them to Harvard even LSU community college they couldn't have been in a training program to deliver pizzas or do the meter reading come on so he gets a new job uh, and he's learning the town he says hey can't be risky to dump a body in a rural town if you don't know the roads you can get lost stick out people remember you can't be ignorant be a successful serial killer for a decade uh, let's see he said sometimes detective Thornton his shoulders would weigh down the failure of all of this I find that hard to believe they just ended the chapter saying don't break your neck this went on for 10 years I find it super hard they're saying there are other cases taxpayers people that count I just find it hard to believe that their folks are going to Disney World in the middle of all this that he would be sitting there oh man somebody's killing all these niggers oh 
What the paper doesn't even care. Like, who's even going to fuss at you about this? Let's see. He's out killing. This I said. Man, the sense of urgency about solving this problem. They said in the documentary, or at least one of them, that Hurricane Katrina. You know, this guy wasn't captured until after that. So I mean, he easily. You heard right here. He's out. Uh, the hurricane was it Hurricane Matthew, the previous one from 2004. They said he's out uh, dumping bodies. Tropical storm. I guess it wasn't a hurricane. Tropical storm. And he's out. Tropical storm Matthew in October 2000. Oh my God, that is crazy. We were. I was in New Orleans in September of 2004. That is crazy as hell. Like, oh my God. Like we could have been killed. Oh. Um, I don't and I don't even remember. I don't remember anybody saying, oh, man, you're going to New Orleans. There's a serial killer. Whoa. I do not remember any of that. There was a hurricane when we went, but that is neither here nor there. Anyway, uh, let's see. And they said he dumped the body while the tropical storm still raged. They said in one of the more recent documentaries uh, that. Dominic said he forgot how many people he killed. He was doing it so long over a decade. I would too, probably. Uh, and they said this went on during Katrina. Hey, they have publicly admitted, Hey, we didn't find all the bodies from Katrina. Never will. Storm comes in and, you know, swamp decomposition. Summertime. They talked about Hey, alligators. Hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You take that and, Oh, <laughs> how convenient storm hey ac thompson i mentioned him this week katrina's hidden race war the police random white people white people that didn't even live in louisiana white people that didn't even let me say it twice white people who didn't even live in louisiana came to the state to kill black males after hurricane katrina and the levee breach if i already live here and i'm a white serial killer you talk about white man's heaven and playground. Oh my. Now they've been saying for weeks, they've been raping babies. I was going to put that sound clip in today. Like my God, remember they said that about the black males. They go, they're raping babies. They're raping babies. Oh my God. They're raping babies. Oh, at the Superdome. Oh, they're raping babies. I was going to play that today. Like <laughs> raping babies. They should have that sound clip like looped forever at the new Orleans diocese. Got an FBI investigation. There's your baby rapers right here usual suspects but it would have been heaven to go out killing during Katrina and they have tropical storm they had Hurricane Ivan came through I think that missed in 2004 the tropical storm oh my god go out and drop a few bodies boom 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 they have a few deaths or whatever or they don't even find it they admitted that several of them he said he forgot and easily who knows if we got all the bodies nobody who will be missed motivation this problem should be solved immediately let's see uh and even they're including some of these like they say it's a drug overdose but is it included because they think oh no he probably killed this one too we just got it wrong which again i've said the whole time through like jesus christ police incompetence and or racism white supremacy maybe a little bit of both you can put it in but i mean jesus christ this guy's killing people and you all are trying to add drug overdose man man He's in the database. You all are stopping him left and right. He's got a criminal record and it takes 
10 years. New Orleans finest. Uh, let's see. Address. Drug dealer. Somewhat homeless. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant either. Let's see. Jaron admitted that he and Matthews started talking about drugs, crack cocaine, and women. Matthews told him that he would let him use his wife's car. He'd bring back some girls and some crack for a party. So much of the drug. Now, we talked about, and rightly so, non-white people not being, you know, properly suspicious in all of this, even though he did kill some white people too. But, man, so many of these victims, there's, like, drugs and alcohol involved. Either they're at a bar or he te- that's a part of the roots, like, hey, we can go do some weed or whatever. Uh, sobriety would be best. So many of these, I think even Ricky Wallace said that, that he wasn't really thinking correctly. And he had substance abuse problems too. Like, we are already super confused at minimum. Being sober in about sobriety so that people are not coming at you with crazy proposals like I mean get your wife's car I can go get her some crack like what in the world like you are at all of nothing about this sounds good at all and then we end up with this I mean let's see I'd have been nervous about going to the police station too. I thought that was a great point too. Uh, that white person gets killed and this becomes a big deal. Front page news. They've been having black people killed for years. And you know, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, you know, we got the Saints got a game. We got lots of things to talk about. Let's see. Oh, and that's the end. Yeah, we're halfway done with this book. Like, I can't believe it. We'll be done probably two weeks. Uh, let's see. And they get a positive identification of Michael Barnett at the end. Make sure I didn't miss anything. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Anything else? All of the by the refrigerated aspect of it as well, because I would normally think something going in the refrigerator and I would think food. And here it's just all these bodies going in the refrigeration because of the advanced decomposition and all the rest of it. Like so, so many elements of delectable Negro uh, throughout the book. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Unless everybody's good. Didn't miss anybody. I don't think anybody did me wackiness wait till last minute grant we will assume everybody got their commentary in uh we will do it again next thursday pick up uh chapter 10 uh much obliged all the folks who called wrote in hope it was worthy of your time and energy feel free if you want to check out some of the documentaries because they do talk to some of the family members of the white victims as well uh, and give their commentary. I don't think we heard any of the white victims' family members yet, but to come. Anywho, uh, Bayou Blue is really good. That's the best one if you want to watch any of this. Anywho, we'll be here tomorrow at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, neutralizing workplace racism. So, for everything that I just said, sobriety would be best.
there are many serial killers and just racist period even if they're not serial killers operating in a system of racism white supremacy they are celebrated you want to be alert mindful about things that are happening around you if you're out and about somebody is being hostile and rowdy you should be thinking hey this person could be armed I am out of here they might have an entourage if I didn't come out prepared for war death killing right now and plenty of it I'm going to get out of here immediately if you're in a vehicle you are sober buckled up you are not on a mobile device we need all of our attention and we're doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. you're a victim yeah. i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned yeah.